You're listening to episode 13 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the story of Nightwing. Also, for some reason, The Whip and Johnny Thunder. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and if you've been listening to the last couple episodes of this show and thinking, you know, two stories per episode is okay, but three stories would be the cat's pajamas, well then I've got good news for you. Secret Origins 13 tells three stories, the origins of Nightwing, The Whip, and Johnny Thunder. My first guest this episode is Tom Panaris, the host of Pop Culture Affidavit and the sadly defunct Taking Flight podcast devoted to Dick Grayson and the other Robins throughout DC's history. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm glad to have you. Um, I was a huge fan of Taking Flight, and I'm sad to see that it had to go. Oh, I'm glad you liked the show. I, I really did. Now, devoted listeners know what Secret Origins is, but any podcast could be someone's first, so I like to make the show as new listener accessible as possible by explaining what it is we're going to talk about. If you're new to the game, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. But how many of those stories do you think have poor attempts at sign language? Probably only <laughs> this one. Tom, how did you get into the character of Nightwing, or Robin? Um, my first exposure to Robin was really early because I used to watch uh, the Super Friends and Scooby-Doo. Mm-hmm. And uh, and those I just I remember I've said this before in other places, but those episodes of Scooby Doo where Batman and Robin would guest star were like appointment television when I was five years old because you know they didn't always have the best guest stars on that Scooby Doo mini movie show, mm-hmm. but um, Batman and Robin was the one like you turned it on, you watched the intro, and you were like really hoping it would be the Batman and Robin one of the Batman and Robin ones. And then um, as, you know, time went on through the 80s and toward the end of the 80s, I saw the Tim Burton Batman film in 89. But my local television station, like a number of local television stations, one of the ones in New York, to BPIX, started rerunning the Adam West series. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my friends and I ate it up with a spoon, even though, you know, Burton's Batman was, you know, a lot more dark and serious. 
in in a lot of places than the kind of kooky campy Adam West show. But like this was Batman on TV and we thought the pow bam, you know, the whole thing. So I knew mm-hmm. Dick Grayson was Robin and that got me into the character. So when I started collecting Batman comics in about 1990, it didn't strike me as weird that Dick Grayson was not Robin because I knew about the death of Jason Todd. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine had loaned me a death in the family and explained who Jason was. And then I had and then another friend of mine had lent me uh, a lonely place of dying. So I learned pretty quickly that, you know, Jason was the one who was dead. Dick had become Nightwing. And uh, and then I got introduced to Tim Drake from there. And the rest is history. With Dick Grayson, though, I was always a fan because he was the original Robin. I liked the character of Nightwing a lot. And almost immediately after I started reading Batman and Detective, I started buying the new Titans because I found out that was the book where you could read Nightwing. Because Nightwing didn't have his own book at that time. In fact, it took it took a good like five years for them to get no pun intended a Nightwing title off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a proposed miniseries that RT Bear was going to do mm-hmm. in about ninety two ninety three. In fact, one of the issues of the series, I think it was the one of the specials, had a poster in it that he drew of Nightwing. So this was supposed to tease that series. And it never, ever happened. And um, and then eventually when Marv Wolfman finally gave up Nightwing mm-hmm. in the Titans and then Denny O'Neill took him over to the Batman books, he finally got his own miniseries and then eventually his own ongoing that Chuck Dixon did. So so I kind of followed the character through there. But um, as I was reading you know, the new Titans through that Titans hunt era, I started going back to the classic Wolfman Perez era – and collecting those, when which in the early 90s was not hard to do because uh, nobody was buying those back issues. So I was getting them for, you know, a buck fifty two dollars which was good for a back issue at the time. And um, I read basically just about everything I needed to know about that sort of the teenaged version of, of Dick Grayson as Robin and Nightwing. Cool. The beginning of your story is similar to mine. I think the first time I saw Robin was actually – it might have been the superpowers toy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't like I didn't buy it off the shelf or anything. I got it through a garage sale or a cousin that didn't play with toys anymore, like gave it to me or something. I think mm-hmm. that was, I think that was my first one of those toys and it didn't have the cape. So I, <laughs> there, there was a period of time where I just, I thought that was his costume without the cape. Uh-huh. And probably the first time I saw him with the cape was on reruns of the, the Adam West TV show. Um, which, again, like, yeah, you're right. Like, right around the time the Batman movie was exploding, every channel was, like, kind of rerunning them. And yeah. I remember seeing it on WGN, which was a Chicago affiliate because I grew up outside of Chicago. And so. I remember being, like, 12 years old and watching that, and nobody was getting their panties in a knot over the interpretation of Batman. Like, we were, like, watching Batman, yeah, you know? it was just – it was more. You saw the movie yeah. and you wanted more of Batman. Well, exactly. Was, the TV show was more of Batman. And, yes, it was a different flavor of Batman, but it was still you, – you recognized who it was. Yeah. And I never had a problem with that. And I, I had an older brother who – this was sort of our relationship. He – because he was older, he called dibs on certain characters. Mm-hmm. Like, like, so he, he, he got to be Batman. Which meant I was Robin. And even though we never played as Batman or Robin because he was older than that, but it was just the established situation. He was Batman. I got stuck with Robin. He was Han Solo because he was old enough to know that Han Solo was the cool one. He had the cool car, the cool dog, and he got the girl. 
And I thought, <laughs> I, you know, I got stuck with Luke Skywalker, which I was fine with as a kid because he was the hero and he got a laser sword. Yeah, when we were kids, we used to fight over who, who wanted to be Luke. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so I, that's how I knew Robin. It was at first from the, that toy and then the, the TV show. And I was getting into the Batman comics around the same time, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, so I read A Death in the Family first. So my first reading exposure to Robin was the death of Jason Todd. And then shortly thereafter was when they started introducing Tim. Um, I wasn't reading Teen Titans, again, like coming in into the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was probably reading, I think, the first Nightwing miniseries, okay. which was a couple of years later, like as you said. That was probably some of my first readings with Dick Grayson, other than like back issues and the greatest Batman stories I've ever told. Yeah. Any other like big thoughts on Robin um, into the story? No, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of anything else. But most of my thoughts are probably saved to our commentary on the story, and then what okay. we want to talk about afterward. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be back in a minute with the secret origin of Nightwing. Welcome to Astro City, a pulp to pixel Honor. podcast, an issue by issue. Ratings and review of the creator-owned comic book series Astro City by the writer-artist team of Kurt Fusick, Brent Anderson, and Alex Ross. You can find episodes of Welcome to Astro City and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts at pulptopixel.blogspot.com, pulptopixel.tumblr.com, through the iTunes Store under the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, and through Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast webpage. Secret Origins 13 was the first issue of the series to come out in 1987. Despite its April cover date, the book would have been on the stands on January 8th, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. The cover is by Pat Broderick and is a split image with Nightwing on the left, Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt on the right, and the whip in a circular insert panel in the bottom center. What do you think of the cover, Tom? I hate the fact that Johnny Thunder looks better than Nightwing. Because <laughs> Nightwing looks just like – I like the idea of him like kind of coming off the ledge with the gargoyle because you know it is Batman related. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a silhouette of the bat symbol on the building. There's a white stripe going down the middle of the cover, very much like the, the little space, the gutter between the two pa- two panels on the comic book. And, and his hand, his left hand is breaking that, which is kind of cool. So it's got a little bit of a 3D effect. But the expression on his face, <laughs> it's, um, I don't know, like he just went to the doctor's office and the doctor put on a rubber glove. It was like, you know, just try to relax. I mean, it's just <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> yes, that's so. That is but a, I like Pratt Broderick a lot. <laughs> me too. And like I, said, I, I think Broderick probably put more emphasis in making Johnny Thunder not look like a doofus. I know. Um, other than that obvious, very bizarre facial expression on Dick, I like the cover. I like the brightness, how like the contrast of colors. There's There's blues and purples that play off each other, and you also get this bright yellow circle in the center. I like the split, the kind of parallel between Nightwing and the Thunderbolt. It's it's an eye-catching cover. Um, yeah. And there are certainly some issues of this series where you just flip past the cover because it's because it's not good. And yeah. I think this is at least a cover that if you're flipping through back issues, you'll stop and you'll look at. Mm-hmm. The collar's too high because the disco collar should come back up to his uh, – about his ears. Mm-hmm. 
and this is going it's practically over his head yeah but that's nitpicking the drawing which overall yeah you're right it is an eye-catching cover which is surprising because it's a busy cover because there's three stories in the issue yeah and essentially four characters yeah yeah all right are you ready to tell our secret admirers about the origin of nightwing i am all right. uh, we have the secret origin of nightwing which was written by dan mishkin penciler was eric larson yes that eric larson savage dragon one of- Yes, Savage Dragon, Eric Larson. This is one of his first, uh, second, like a second or third co- professionally uh, published comics work. Yeah, uh, according, to, according to Mike's Amazing, he did one issue of Amazing Spider-Man before this. Yeah, and he had, um, and he would go on to do a couple of issues of uh, Teen Titans, New Teen Titans, the Baxter series, as well as a couple of issues and some covers of Teen Titans Spotlight. Before I think, eventually. His he makes his name by he takes over for McFarlane on Amazing Spider-Man, I believe. Yeah, a couple uh, about in the early nineties mm-hmm. before before image. Uh, your anchor is Mike DiCarlo. John Costanza is your letterer. Carl Gafford's the colorist. Robert Greenberger is the editor. And uh, Bob has a note that I will point out, and then I'll, I'll elaborate. I'm going to elaborate on that before I guess, actually get to my summary. He says the story takes place during the events depicted in the New Teen Titans number sixteen to nineteen, or Tales of the New Teen Titans number seventy four to number seventy seven. Take your pick. And one of the interesting things about this story is actually when it takes place. Um, being a person who's read and reread and reread all of those Titans issues. If you know anything about the publication history of the New Teen Titans, in 1984, they, you know, the the, the series, the, the classic Wolfman Paris series started in 1980 after DC Comics Presents 26 and there was New Teen Titans number one in 1980. And in about 1984, DC started launching a line of direct market only books, many of which were at first, were published on Baxter paper. So a lot of people refer to this second New Teen Titans series as the Baxter series because they they needed a couple of books that were, I guess, hot sellers to entice people to want to kind of go to the shops and, and pick them up. And uh, the New Teen Titans and the Legion of Superheroes were two of those books. I don't know if you can count The Outsiders because The Outsiders was like, kind of like the third book, but I don't know... Uh, it launched a little bit later than the other two, and I honestly can't tell you whether or not Batman and the Outsiders was as popular. So I'm not going to rag on that. Um, but I'll have to ask Luke Cecchinetti about that yeah, the next time I talk to him. He probably will. Uh, but New Teen Titans was a huge, huge seller for DC. It was right up there with Swamp Thing in, in, in its sales. Uh, Legion of Superheroes was selling very well, or at least had a very, very solid following. So what they did was they launched new titles with both of those books. And for about a year... The old title, which was New Teen Titans, became this title book called Tales of the Teen Titans. And for about a year, both books, the Baxter series and the new and the, and the regular series, were publishing new stories. And then after that year, what Tales of the Teen Titans became was a reprint book for the newsstand of the Baxter series. So if you are ever wanting to read the entire Marv Wolfman run on New Teen Titans and New Titans chronologically in order, you have to read if DC Comics. You start with DC Comics Presents 26. You go up to New Teen Titans, Tales of the Teen Titans number 58. Then you go to issue number one of the 1984 Baxter series. 
And uh, so 16 through 19 was this storyline that was reprinted in Tales of the Teen Titans, 74, 75, 76, 77. And having read these over and over, I can actually pinpoint to when this story probably did take place. It was probably somewhere around issue 18 or 19 of the uh, Baxter series because Nightwing's back on Earth by issue 19. I think by the end of 18, he's back on Earth. Okay. And Corey and Karis, who's it's this whole political marriage storyline that's going on over on Tamarind, they get married in issue 17, and that's depicted in here. So it's probably around issue 18. And if you're reading uh, Tales of the Teen Titans, issue 76 would be the one, where, which was the wedding. 76 was out this month. I looked it up on Mike's Amazing World. Yeah, I did too. Like the yeah. the regular new Teen Titans book, this this story would probably be over a year old at that yes. point. But if you're following the reprints and tales of the Teen Titans, then this is coming out pretty much exactly when it should have been in, yeah. so in terms of the chronology. Yeah, exactly. So you would have read – if you were following Tales of the Teen Titans, if you read 76, then read this, then read 77, it would actually it, – it, that's where it kind of fits in. And again, that's me being – continuity story like you know where do you file this in your collection if you're filing things by the titans like i do um what's also uh, uh interesting is how this version of dick's origin is actually only fully valid for literally two months <laughs> i was gonna the, bring that up too this secret origins issue comes out of the same month as batman number 406 which is part three of year one mm-hmm. batman 408 is the story did robin die tonight that establishes that Batman fired Dick as opposed to Dick quitting yep. on his own. And it also is the one – it's the issue that reinvents Jason Todd mm-hmm. as the kid who boosted the tires off the Batmobile as opposed to the circus performer who is more or less like a Dick Grayson clone. And uh, it doesn't invalidate the whole story because the whole Boss Zuko thing and all of that is still the origin of Dick Grayson. And we get a full version of the post-crisis origin of Dick Grayson in year three, which was 436 to 439 of Batman. And I want to say that was 1989. I believe you're right. Yeah. Um, Because 450 was the summer of 90. Yeah. And they were double shipping some of those months in the – in 89 and 90. So – Yes. That sounds right. Probably 89. Yeah. So – and that's all continuity goodness. I just always found this interesting of like, you know, how this was the sort of – this is in that the very tail end of that weird hangover period where all of the post-crisis changes didn't seem to be in effect for all of the characters. And there are still some remnants of pre-crisis or the crisis. Like they're kind of sorting things out in terms of some characters' characterization, especially in the Bat books and especially where Robin is concerned. Mm-hmm. But eventually we get to, you know, a- after year one and then after year one, year two and that – origin reorigin of Jason Todd were kind of solid in like what each of these characters is like and who they are. So let's get to the plot of the story. We are on our setting is Okara, which is a world in the Vagan system. Uh, and Nightwing, Jericho, Starfire, her husband Karis, and a group of Tamaranians, they'd fled here after Blackfire staged a coup shortly after her sister's wedding in issue 17 of the Baxter series and 76 of Tales of the Teen Titans. Nightwing, who at this point is in still in his classic disco collar beefcake costume that George Perez designed and really could only draw. Uh, and Jericho, who's wearing some sort of traditional Tamaranian clothing, which is basically nothing. So the small but annoyingly vocal contingent of Jericho fans, you know, has something to look at, I guess. 
they're chasing this thing called a monkey bird. Uh, and it is. It's a hybrid of a monkey and a bird through an artificial forest environment. Uh, that And Nightwing almost captures it. But as they head toward a cliff, the monkey bird flies away because it's a monkey bird. This leads Dick to say, first time I saw one of those monkey birds, I thought how much they're like people. You've got to give them a chance to fall if they ever prove they can fly. This reminds him of the Flying Graysons, and he flashes back to 15 years ago tonight, which is his fifth birthday, as this is Dick Grayson's 20th birthday. His father is having him practice without a net for the first time. He winds up being successful on his first attempt, but when he falls the second time, his father bounces off a trampoline and catches him, not letting his boy wonder, you know, fall to his death uh, the first time he was working without a net. Thanks, Dad. Five years later, just after Dick's 10th birthday, Haley's circus takes a fateful trip to Gotham City, and Dick witnesses his parents falling to their deaths. He says how he wondered how he was going to live and that he was really alone. Jericho tells him he can stop telling the story, but Dick says he has to continue as it's only appropriate that on his 20th birthday, he thinks back to the past while trying to figure out his future. He goes on to tell the story of how he overheard the owner of the circus being shaken down for money, but was stopped from going to police by Batman who took him into the Batcave and on the way there explained that boss Zuko more or less runs Gotham at this point. And if Dick should say anything, Zuko would more than likely have him killed. Soon after, Bruce takes him in, Dick trains with him, and is given a costume in the name of Robin. Then, on his first night as Robin, he catches Zuko red-handed, taking a picture of him murdering one of his own henchmen that would eventually get the mob boss thrown in jail. Life as Robin was fun. Life as Dick Grayson wasn't always fun, especially as he had to be part of the high society that Bruce Wayne was a part of, and he also couldn't use his really good fighting skills against the schoolyard bullies. He then takes a moment to compare his backstory to Batman's, and he points out how he turned out completely different from Bruce. While Batman was obsessed with finding his parents' killers for years, Dick had that laid to rest pretty quickly, and he thinks that's what made him more outgoing and bright. Then, of course, came the Teen Titans, the original version. We see their triumphs, we see their tragedies, and we see their breakup all in just a few panels. Then Dick leaves the Batcave for college in a solo career, the latter of which goes well, the former of which doesn't. He drops out of college. Bruce is not happy. Dick tells Jericho that he has come to realize that his defiance in this regard was his way of saying he didn't want to be another Batman. Dick feels lost for a little while, but then finds his way again with the new Teen Titans. Then, he strikes out on his own as Nightwing, handing the Robin costume over to Jason Todd. He tells Jericho the Titans are his home and family and says how important Corey has been to him. She's given him an emotional center. She's given him the ability to express his emotions in a way that Bruce never did, which is why Corey's recent wedding to Karis has been so tough on him. She insists that it's a political wedding and things, you know, will stay the same. But he is basically, how can things stay the same when you're married to somebody else? He tells Jericho that he once again feels rudderless and is all sorts of confused. Jericho says that he should fly. And Dick remembers that, yes, you need to fall before you can fly. Jericho has led Dick back to the camp that they all have made and shows him that down below them, Corey and the others are actually preparing a surprise birthday party for Dick. Jericho then gives him a disc that some Tamaranian artists used to make holographic 
thought paintings or something, and he has thought painted the monkey bird while he was Dick was t- telling him all about his his secret origin. Dick thanks him for the gift and the conversation, and then they jump to the camp with Dick saying, "Come on, let's fly." And thus ends the secret origin of Nightwing. Thoughts? It dates itself very quickly because of its tying into what was going on in Teen Titans at the time, especially since if you're a person who was a fan of Nightwing and came upon Nightwing in the 90s, I I don't know if this was a directive from Denny O'Neill or if it was higher up at DC or if it was just Chuck Dixon, but when they got Nightwing back in the Bat books in the 90s, they really downplayed the Teen Titans mm-hmm. stuff. Like the the Corey, the Corey, because he and Corey had broken up completely by then. She went off into space and and they really didn't interact very much. Um, so they really, really downplayed it to the point where, not that they, they, it's almost like they pretended it didn't happen, even though everybody knew it happened. So here's one that's very steeped in what was going on because Wolfman, who's not involved with the story, but Wolfman um, was the one who was fostering the character. Um, and I wonder it, why Marv Wolfman didn't write this. I, mean, I don't know. Too busy? Well, I, I, I kind of checked his like what he had that was published the same month, and he only had like one or two other books. And I wonder if he could have fit this in his schedule. But I mean, this was also this was pretty close to around the time that he was doing like, the the history of the DC universe. So. Maybe, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it, uh, this, it could have been scheduling, but... This is, um, all right, I'm thinking the same month as t- the new Teen Titans Baxter, Baxter series number 30, 30, 31 comes out, which is the end of this, the tail end of that very, very long Brother Blood storyline. And from what I've read in interviews with him, this is around the time that well, he, he, he had gotten divorced, he moved to California, and... He started getting writer's block, hmm. and and it probably was because of a lot of the personal problems. He said that he had a really bad case of writer's block where it was just very, very tough for him to write. And I remember at one point in some of those Teen Titans issues, even though he did a lot of the stories and stuff, um, Paul Levitz came in to either help with the script or the plot. Hmm. Because it was just – it was becoming – like things were getting in the way. And I know he had other stuff that he was doing with television too, so he might not have been – capable or available to do something like this, mm. which is why I gave it to Dan Michigan. He might not have even been asked actually either. So true. true. So, um, you know, the, the framing device aside, Jericho is probably the best person to have the conversation with because the rule about writing Jericho is that you couldn't make him talk or you couldn't even make him have a thought bubble. <laughs> Um, and that was a, that was George Perez actually, who was kind of came up with that rule when they were creating Jericho. Uh, Marv couldn't use thought bubbles for the for the mute character. He had to have him use sign language, huh. or Marv would get around it by having Jericho possess somebody else and then talk through that character, which is clever. Yeah, but yeah. So you know, for me, device aside, this is a really succinct retelling of the origin story. Yeah, I like it. There, I was surprised because there are a few things that seem downplayed and a few things that are, are changed. Right from the beginning, when Dick is a young boy at the circus, when they go to Gotham City, there is no necessarily foreshadowing of the death of his parents, yes. John and Mary Grayson. And 
as far back as Robin's first appearance in, in Detective Comics issue 38, it starts with Dick Grayson overhears yeah. these guys threatening threatening Mr. Haley. Yeah, and Michigan writes it in reverse in that mm-hmm. he overhears them shaking them down after the death of – now, it works either way because mm-hmm. the dialogue is like, you know, too bad about that accident. You should have taken our advice. But So they were shaking him down earlier. But in, in all the other versions of the story, Dick hears it before the performance. Right. And I, I like that because it adds a sense of this sort of guilt – Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't blame him for it. You don't think he could have stopped it, but you understand how that would haunt him. Yeah. How he would feel like if he had done something different and that would drive him a little bit more. Um, when Batman takes Dick to the Batcave, I love the iconic image of them swearing the oath with their yes. hands raised over the candle. But on page eight, Larson sort of positions the camera so far away that I think the moment isn't as strong as it could be? No, because when – I think when Broderick does it, I'm pretty sure Broderick does it in year three. And then, But when Bob Kane did it, mm-hmm. it has power to it Yeah, because it's so up close. And, and he uses the lighting of the candle too, mm-hmm. which, which works too. We also find out in this, in this version of the story that it's Batman who gives him the name Robin. Mm-hmm. And in subsequent retellings of this origin, they've they've changed that a couple times. Um, and sometimes it's been he came up with the name himself. Sometimes they've said that it was something inspired by something that his mother or father called him. Yes. I think Chuck Dixon had that in there, that his mother, I think, called it had something to do with Robin in there. Mm-hmm. Did you get the uneasy – feeling that I got when basically while they, they need to catch Zuko in the act of doing something, they essentially let one of his... I know he's a criminal, but they essentially let one of his henchmen die. <laughs> well, that's... it's. Uh, I actually... I had to go back to that first story, so I compared it to Detective number 38. Yeah. And it's much more involved in that scene. Mm-hmm. Like, they're actually... They're fighting with Zuko and his men. Yeah. And Robin kicks somebody off one of those giant girders. Yeah. And we assume that that guy falls to his death. Um, so then, yeah, Zuko only pushes his man off there because Batman threatens the guy into confessing and mm-hmm. basically narking on Zuko, and that's why he pushes him. But without that, when you strip away all that other context and you just get this one panel of Robin taking the picture, it does change the idea. It does say, it's like, okay, well, because Batman's not in that panel. It was like, all right, was Batman basically just saying catch Zuko but don't engage? Don't put yourself on the line yet? Yeah. And that, yeah, it, it is. It is a very different feeling of that scene from yeah. this depiction. Well, this is this is an origin that is tough to do in was this thirteen pages? Well, if you strip, if you strip away the the framing sequences, yeah, it's yeah, it because it, it's it's a twenty page story. But you're right; it's probably if we were to do the math, fifteen pages or whatever. Um, it's tough to do that because Nightwing's origin is long. Because there's two parts of the origin. There's the death of Mary and John Grayson and the origin of Robin. And then there's the evolution into Nightwing. Right. Which happened originally in pre-crisis DC, happened gradually. Because post-crisis, he got fired. But because the Joker shot him. <laughs> because the Joker shot him. And 
you know, which I never understood. Why couldn't you just have him have grown up? But then again, I guess they were trying to compress the timeline because that would have implied that Batman's a lot older than he's than he should be. I also think by that time they were positioning Batman as a different type of mentor mm-hmm. and they wanted him to be a little bit more harsh, yeah. a little bit more of a taskmaster. Yeah, it provided the impetus for some great tension between Dick and Bruce mm-hmm. that finally gets a final resolution at the end of Prodigal. In, so, yeah, uh, so much later. Yeah. Like, even like that was 94, yeah, years 95? Yeah, that I mean... after Zero Hour. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they make up, essentially, they start that healing process in a lonely place of dying. But it's not until Prodigal that that you feel that this they've kind of finally come full circle and, and everything is is okay. Whereas in pre crisis, it was basically a Donna Troy's wedding where they buried whatever hatchet was between them, which was six months after Dick had started being Nightwing. So the new origin of Dick kind of gave us a lot better stories with uh, with this sort of you know idea of who Batman. The, the relationship between the two characters were. But in trying to tell this story in uh, this short amount of space, you're right. You start cutting out context and it looks – certain events look a little bit different than they actually are. And if you are – if you know the original story, you can just kind of fill in the missing pieces on your own. Mm-hmm. If you don't and this is your first time reading the origin of, of Robin Nightwing, you're like – Wait, did he just do what I think he did? <laughs> so. uh, on page 10, as uh, Dick is telling the story to Jericho, mm-hmm. he says flat out, his parents' murder went unavenged for years. This is Batman, right? Yeah. I, in my preferred headcanon, my preferred sort of Batman universe, mm-hmm. um, there is no Joe Chill. Hmm. The murderer of Thomas and Martha Wayne has no identity. He has no face. It's because Batman could never catch that guy. Batman could never stop or even identify who killed his parents. Because even even if somebody else, like in Batman Begins, even if another mobster whacks that guy like on his way in the courthouse, then there is still a semblance of closure. And I don't think Batman can ever get that closure. I don't I, I think that's bad for the character. See, and I and I love that original origin of Batman story where he catches Chill. I don't like how they do it in um, Year Two. I love Year Two. I think it's underrated. But the Joe Chill aspect of Year Two, in my mind, is the weakest yeah. part of that story. I, I like the sort of bigger cosmic idea that Gotham City killed them. That crime as a concept killed them and that that's yeah. what Batman is waging war against. And that's why he can never, that's why it'll, it'll never be over for him. I like that idea, but I will add that I like the idea of Batman catching chill mm-hmm. years down the line. Mm-hmm. In my head, Canon Dick's right as Robin. He never, when he first started as Robin, Batman had been doing this for a few years and he'd never caught Joe chill. Mm-hmm. And I like the point he makes about the fact that Dick was about 11 years old and they caught Zuko. Yeah. And that lifted that weight off of him because even if Bruce had caught Joe Chill six months into his career as Batman, 
let's say Bruce becomes Batman in his mid-20s. Right. It's still 10, 15 years later. Yeah. It's still all this time brooding. Yeah. Whereas Dick had probably been, it was about a year. Mm-hmm. And that, I think he makes a really good point that that makes a huge difference in who you grow up to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do like the idea that he became Batman. He took on Robin. They fought crime for a number of years. And at one point down the line, he solved the case. Mm-hmm. And then he, but he was mature enough and seasoned enough to realize that this doesn't end me. I keep on going from here because of everybody else, because of what Joe Chill, you know, what you were just saying, what Gotham represented Joe Chill created. I also like the fact that when he picks up, because, you know, the first thing you're going to say is like, you know, I, he, when Dick's 10 years old, he's like, you know, I'm going right to the police. And Batman's like, no. And he's like, you know, Zuko owns this town. Mm-hmm. You'd be dead within an hour. And I like the idea of, a Batman earlier in his career who has not striked fear into the hearts of everybody, who has not completely taken down every criminal organization seven times over, where he doesn't feel that, like, you know, because there's a point in Batman, especially through the 90s, especially through the 2000s, where you used to, I started to get the feeling that, like, Batman was the one who ran Gotham. <laughs> and this isn't that Batman. Um, and, and I like the fact that they were they were. This is that. this is a Batman that exercises caution because mm-hmm. the danger is still real. Yes, not the Batman who exercises caution just to test everyone's patience. Yeah, exactly. That is a very good moment. I, I hadn't ever really considered it that way. That Batman would eventually he would solve the case years later, but by that point have the the distance of realizing mm-hmm. this doesn't change anything. This doesn't change the mission at all um it's uh, the victory at that point would be almost moot i also i and i in part of it you're right um that dick was able to have that sense of closure that sense of justice when catching zuko early enough in his career early enough in his grieving period yeah um that it that it mattered to him i also think it matters a lot that dick was adopted that dick was brought into a family that while perhaps not necessarily the most healthy he had a family, a structure that raised him and loved him and supported mm-hmm. him, and Bruce didn't. And I, I always come down to that's that's a major difference between Batman and Superman. Yeah, is that when Superman, his parents, his biological parents died, sacrificing themselves to give him a life. Yeah, and then he's he's raised by the Clarks, by the Kents. He's adopted by people who love him and foster him and nurture him, and. Bruce's parents were taken in a random, senseless act of violence. They were stolen from him, and he didn't have the structure. I mean, if depending on the continuity, whoever is raising him just isn't isn't the same type of figure, and that's why Superman mm-hmm. sees the best in people. Yeah, and Batman doesn't. Batman sees the worst in yeah. people. Well, and Robin is constantly surrounded by. He's got his family with with Bruce, but then he's and and prior to that, his parents who raised him for ten years. So you know that's that's enough to leave an impression on them. And then he's got his friends, mm-hmm. and he's got the Titans. Whereas yes, Batman was in the Justice League. If you're looking at pre-Crisis, Batman was in the Justice League and had a very very close relationship with Superman. Right. Post-Crisis, they start setting him up as the sort of Frank Miller esque loner. Right. And depending on the writer, mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily get along with everybody. Yeah. But either way, you're talking about different stages in their life. Yeah. yeah. You're talking about a grown-up, an adult Batman in his yeah. 20s, or early 30s versus a teenager. Yeah. Kids need that socialization. Yeah. 
Yeah. I've never really read a ton of Eric Larson stuff. And I know this is very, very early in his career, which is now hitting the point where it's spanned 30 years. A lot of the artwork in this is really stiff. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's him or if it's DiCarlo inking or what. Um, there are a few really good panels and some good sequences. Um, I crack up at the way Bruce is yelling at Dick on page 15. <laughs> Uh, but but yeah, it's really stiff. But I actually got a, the feeling that he's trying to be as close to George Perez in yeah. some of these panels as he can. And yeah. sometimes it's a decent imitation, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's really not. Yeah. Um. I I think later in his career, like when he went to Marvel full time, like he I think he did the first Incredible Hulk issue after McFarlane, uh-huh. and then he did the Amazing Spider-Man after McFarlane. Yeah. And in both cases, I, I liked his work more than McFarlane when he was doing Spider-Man. I've seen some of it, and I remember liking it. Yeah. I just I don't think I was into Spider-Man at the time. Yeah. This is a young artist. Yeah. I'm extremely familiar with the teen, the new Teen Titans. The Teen Titans, the original. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the Showcase Presents trades. I have not read all of the stories, so I'm not as familiar with them. So I know the on page 12, the bottom right-hand panel, where this girl is dead. I know that is a specific reference to something that happened in an issue of Teen Titans where on one of their cases, because I think they ended up going underground after it for a while or something, but it was a significant death in the book. Mm-hmm. And But I cannot tell you, and hopefully somebody will email and let you know, like I can't tell you what that is off the top of my head. I probably should go look it up. But bottom of page 13, this is really weird to me. <laughs> so you've got this great shot of him saying something what began as a junior Justice League. Now, he does make the point because this was 87. So Man of Steel had already come and gone. And he says, too bad there wasn't a Superboy. We would have invited him to join too. Mm-hmm. So there is a that's, – that's post-crisis. Even though that could have been pre-crisis as well because Superboy was Superman. And it was widely known at that point that Superboy eventually became Superman. But then you have this panel at the bottom. And he says we – so what began as a sort of junior Justice League became something much – more and it was then when I actually broke with the Batman blah 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 and you have this great panel of Aqualad Kid Flash, Robin, Wonder Girl and Speedy you know holding hands in triumph and above them are the images of their mentors except Wonder Woman (laughs) and I'm trying to I I, I don't know when I should have looked it up and made a note about on Mike's Amazing World when Wonder Woman number one came out it would have been I think two months before this. Okay, so I, now, I, I think Wonder Woman came out the same month as Batman four hundred four. Okay, I think, so I think Perez's Wonder Woman and Year One started at the same time. All right, so by the by the time they were writing this, you have to assume a few months lead time on getting the story together. By the time they were doing this, there was probably already a directive handed down of what Wonder Woman was going to be. You know, in terms of like, you know, the sidekick and Wonder Girl and all that. or And I know that in Legends, she kind of made her quote debut and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I did wonder for a second, though, if Eric Larson had drawn Wonder Woman in and somebody had erased it. That was my – I actually wrote that note. I, yeah. I would pay money that Wonder Woman was drawn in that yeah. in that shot. 
and they scrambled and said, wait a minute, Wonder Woman, we haven't created her yet. She doesn't yeah. have a post-crisis identity yet. Yeah. And they just – and they they erased her and they just like floods that because it's such exactly. a weird shot. It is. And it's like if, if they knew that, they would have composed the shot differently. Well, that and Ollie's shoulder isn't finished. Right, right. Like, it looks like another, somebody erased it. Yeah, like it, and Bruce's shoulder, Bruce's other shoulder isn't finished. Although that's kind of cut off because there's this symbolic of shattering of their mentor's picture, meaning that they're striking out on their own. I guess that's what it's supposed to represent. So the thing with Batman's shoulder kind of disappearing there isn't as egregious, but Ollie's, it's like that's what led me to believe it. And why does Aquaman look so shocked? <laughs> Garth has friends. <laughs> Actually, the Flash kind of does too. Those almost look like swipes, like Larson was looking at another – Yeah. A, a specific panel or a page or something. Yeah. Then we get the whole um, – the college stuff, which is uh, – it's a throwback to Adventures from the 60s, which um, I don't think are essential. They are sort of – kind of sort of in continuity post-crisis. I think it was really fuzzy that he dropped out or whatever and um, – I love how he says my solo crime fighting career was less than satisfying. And it's a panel of him tackling a typical 80s punk villain because this is an 80s comic and the street villains are punks stealing like an apple from a fruit stand. (laughs) Could have been doing bigger and better things. I know, right? I mean, even crazy quilts tougher than that. (laughs) And then you have this gorgeous – Splash page of various events of the New Teen Titans um, run, although that's a very awkward pose for Raven up in the upper left where she's like yeah, got her leg up on leg something. Up yeah, and then, of course, like I said, um, you have Jason in that sort of pseudo-Robin costume he'd had. And this is different because about a year – yeah, about a year after this, you have Batman 416 – which is one of my all-time favorite Batman issues, and that's the first meeting of Nightwing and Robin post-crisis. Um, at the end of that issue, Dick gives Jason the bigger version of the Robin costume. Yeah. As a sort of symbolic act of, like, I'm passing the torch. And then, of course, you have his romance with Starfire, Stella. <laughs> See? Stella? She's, uh, a, she's a bad shipper. Yeah, I know. And then the marriage and just basically a recap of what's been going on and, and the legacy and stuff. And like I said, I think it, it all fits in. It all fits into what's been going on. Mm-hmm. It is a good character beat. It's consistent with his character in the New Teen Titans at that point because it would go on to the storyline. There were like – there were three storylines running concurrently in the New Teen Titans from about issue 13 or 14, which were crisis crossovers, all the way to issue 31 – or actually even to 34 or 5, where you had Starfire being taken back to Tamaran to get married. This brother blood storyline involving Raven. And Dick would be so kind of confused and wayward that he would be like, I'm going searching for Raven. And he gets caught up with the brother blood cult and, and stuff. And they have to come in and rescue him from it and stuff. And then the third storyline was the uh, Steve Dayton went insane again. And Gar and uh, Vic went after him. So it was all this sort of disparate Titan stuff. And then eventually the team came back together. And had it not lasted almost two years, I mean, I wasn't reading it in real time. I read it in a big chunk of back issues. But if it hadn't gone on for so long, it probably would have been a lot better than it is. Hmm. 
But this fits, the character beat fits in really well because this is the period of Nightwing where he is really unsure of himself at points. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the conflict with Batman will, will rear its ugly head again. And, and he, he, he suffers a real crisis of conscience through a lot of his career through the late 80s and into the early to mid 90s. And like I said, after Prodigal, he becomes more sure of himself and more confident. And it's it's almost like he graduates in a sense. Yeah. What do you think of the origin, not this origin story, but the the circus performer aspect of the Robin origin? I've always liked that. I liked it because it gave him a set of skills that he had at a very young age that when he becomes Robin, it makes logically makes sense that he had the ability to do these things, like that he had strength and speed and, and, and agility like that because he'd been trained as an acrobat since he was a little little tyke. And from the original story in 1940, people liked the circus back then. Yes. And little kids liked acrobats and clowns. And, and, and you're a kid reading a comic and like, here's this kid in the circus. And then he gets to be Batman. And I mean, that's like, this could be you. I mean, that's the whole angle there. And it totally works. Nowadays, I never really liked the idea of the circus. My son's not been to the circus. I hate clowns. But the idea of being an acrobat or being an athlete mm-hmm. at a very young age and being a very skilled athlete at a very young age uh, before parents are killed and everything, that, that makes sense. It fits in. I've always liked it and I've never um, – it's never seemed weird to me that he was part of the circus before he, before he became Robin. I love it for all the reasons that you say and it is such a – definitive and iconic origin and the the images associated with it with the parents falling to their deaths and this kid able to do all these crazy things but it does feel very difficult right now and i think it's part of the reason why we haven't seen a live action robin in a while is because i don't know if dc or warner brothers knows how to translate that origin into a contemporary and not make it feel forced because circuses are quaint. They are very old fashioned. I actually had, I I did a Google search just to see if there were any functioning circuses in the United States today. And there are, and there, uh, there's some in Pennsylvania and upstate New York, but it's, it's still, you really have to stretch the imagination to say, okay, Bruce Wayne is going to a circus outside of Gotham city. It's like, why? And I was wondering if there was a way to transpose that into something more contemporary and and short of yeah. being like an Olympic gymnast, but even then there's there's all sorts of there's more structure involved and you kind of need the free wheelingness of the of the it, of the circus in order to justify how Bruce would end up adopting this kid or taking it, him in. You also need to have whatever athletic role you put Dick in, you need to have his parents be doing it with him. Mm-hmm. The circus aspect of it lends itself to that. They're trained acrobats. They're part of an act. Right. Um, if he were, even at a young level, a pre-Olympic or Olympic gymnast, what's to say that his parents are? Right. You know, he's not. He's not performing with them. They don't perform. Wouldn't have performed in tandem in competition. Right. At a show, um, we can make them figure skaters or something. There's yeah. very, very few sports where a man and this is just our society. There's very few sports where a man and a woman perform together. Mm-hmm. I think, honestly, think figure skating is the only one that I can think of that's high profile. Yeah, you know, unless unless you're going into areas like dancing mm-hmm. and things like that, where you could have that. You could have Dick Grayson as a dancer. 
I think it would work. It loses some of the tension and the drama because it's not yeah. dangerous, and that is such a part of the story too. It's much easier to explain that Batman comes back to the Batmobile and finds a kid boosting his tires. Yeah. But the problem I always had with that Jason Todd origin was you lack the tragedy mm-hmm. and that that connection between yeah. Bruce and Dick is so central yeah. that Bruce saw another boy orphaned and said, I can help this kid get what I didn't get. It's a way of him working through his grief over his parents at a point where he has not caught his parents killer. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's altruistic and selfish at the same time. Right. Which so. kind of that, that sentence sort of encapsulates my whole feeling on the nature of Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. I think Robin represents Batman's greatest achievement and his greatest success yeah. as well as his greatest failure. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, it's, it's the way that Bruce doesn't lock down and become so insular and so obsessed with the mission. It is his, it is his human connection. Uh, certainly, we're talking about a, a depiction of Batman that I grew up with, which is post-crisis. Yeah. Obviously, if you go back through the decades, you had a very friendly and a very social and amicable or amiable oh, yeah. Batman. But with, in a more contemporary look at the character, he needs Robin to kind of keep him grounded a little bit. But it's also Robin represents that aspect that Batman couldn't do it himself. And he's also bringing other people into his mission and perhaps into his obsession and and trapping them that way and molding them into miniature versions of himself. And you can look at the psychology of that and yeah, it's, it, is, it is a complex dynamic and it depends on the way you view Batman and yeah. what type of Batman you want to see will inform how you think about the relationship between Batman and Robin. Yeah, and it's almost like the post-crisis Jason mm-hmm. shows you the latter there. Yes, that, that you know this is this isn't taking because post-crisis Jason goes too far with some things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the writing was on the wall. I think they re. Yeah. I think they redid ro- that Jason Todd Robin because they knew they were going to kill him off or write him out in a way yes. because they wanted that effect on Batman. And but I then, think it, they wanted to yeah. show the aftermath of a death in the family on Batman and how how he responds to that. Yeah, and then Tim Drake is the former there. He's the one who reminds Batman of his humanity mm-hmm. and kind of eventually pulls him out because Tim Drake was, I mean, to me, was the first, it was like I was more or less, you and I were both more or less on the ground floor with him. Mm-hmm. And it was to us, it seemed, at least to me, it seemed very organic. And he was the one who showed like how there are times when Batman can't do this by himself. You know, Tim brought a lot of other different things to the character of Robin that neither Dick nor Jason did. But going back to Dick, yeah, it's this companionship in a sense as well that that Bruce is severely lacking. Mm -hmm. And I hesitate to use that word because if you take it further, it sounds really creepy (laughs) to put it that way. And I'm not trying to sound like that, but. Let's ask yeah. Dr. Frederick Wortham what to even look No, but I, I get it. And there, there's also the sense of the family, that, mm-hmm. that Bruce was seeking something that he didn't have, which was a brother, a friend, uh, a family. Like he, he needed that because he lost it. And I think they were both better for that. Um, yeah. Going back way back to how I first discovered Robin, and this is how I discovered 
so many of the DC characters before I read them in print. I was seeing the action figures like Super Powers Toys or the Super Friends cartoon. Yeah. Or I was seeing them on like T-shirts and merchandise and stuff. It was for me. They were always the icons. They were images. They were yeah. kind of larger than their character. They were symbols. So for me, when I think of Robin, I think of the original Robin. I think of skinny legs and all, the the yellow cape and no, you know, no yeah. pants and everything. And that is my definitive Robin. So I always I associate that with Dick Grayson. I like Dick more as Robin than as Nightwing. Now, I say that and admit that I have read better Robin stories with Tim Drake, and mm-hmm. part of that is the nature of the times. He, the, the writing was more sophisticated. You can argue that, but I would say like they, they went into more depth and they told more nuanced and sophisticated Robin stories it's, with Tim. It's a different time. It is. It is. And it's it, for the same reason my definitive version of The Flash is Barry Allen because uh-huh. he is the original version of that Flash. Now, I've read a hell of a lot more good Wally West Flash stories mm-hmm. than Barry Allen ones. But if I've got to pick one, I'm, I'm going with Barry. So it's it is this weird form of fandom that I have where I, I, I'm always going to gravitate to what I see as their definitive iconic version. Which might, be, which might be why I was more forgiving of a lot of the things that Dan DiDio was doing early in his regime when he yeah. was bringing back Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen and the, these, you know, the, the versions when he was getting rid of the legacy characters. Because I, I liked the ones that I saw on, you know, the cartoons. Uh, I'm hot and cold on what DiDio did. I liked the legacy characters because mm-hmm. um, I liked Kyle Rayner. And I liked Wally. And, and I think with Dick and Tim, I always liked that they gave Tim a new costume, mm-hmm. mainly because I really liked Tim's first costume when I was 13. I was like, that's really cool. But in hindsight, in 20-something years of collecting, the fact that they didn't have Tim in the old costume makes sense because Tim was a totally different person. Yeah. And it's not out of the – and so the thought comes not out of the, oh, the old costume was lame because I like – you know, there are there are times when the Robin costume, the old Robin costume is not drawn very well. But then there are times where it's drawn really well with the – you know, because it's, it's a circus costume. It's yeah, his old yeah. circus costume mixed with a little bit of Peter Pan and a little bit of Robin Hood and that's on purpose. And there are a few people who could draw the adult-looking Dick Grayson in that costume. Yeah, I think, like – I think George Perez mm-hmm. – and few Marshall, others. Marshall Rogers Marshall and Neil Rogers. Adams come um, to mind. <laughs> yeah. And and even yeah, and I like I kinda like the way Gene Colan did it in the on, mm-hmm. on Jason Todd too. But Dick Giordano did a halfway decent job of it as well. But yeah. but yeah, you're right. It just if you get the wrong person on that and it's awkward looking. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was you're right, it's an iconic costume. Mm-hmm. And if I'm gonna see Dick Grayson as Robin, I wanna see Dick Grayson in that costume. Yeah. You know, if only for a moment, you know, because that's the Robin costume and it's not like you can't make it work. I almost wish particularly like in prior to the new 52 when they brought Damien aboard to be the new Robin and, and Tim became Red Robin. I, I hated that idea. Yum. I wish I can see I can see Tim Drake graduating and saying, okay, Robin was never me. I filled, I was a substitute Robin. I served a particular purpose, or I, I was interning to help Batman through this time. Yeah, but but Tim, is, Tim is much more independent. Like Tim, Tim represents the detective aspect of, of Batman's nature. 
Um, but he, it, he never had to be the best fighter, but he was more yeah. cerebral and intellectual. Oh, yeah. He was a computer nerd. I actually thought Tim could have been Oracle when they brought Batgirl back. Yeah. Um, but they, I, I was off the Bat books and Robin and everything before Tim became Red Robin. And I like the idea, the concept of Tim growing out of the role. But I always thought that he would have always felt that, yes, I am Robin. I just think that if you – granted, doing this – makes Batman some sort of like Dorian Gray type of character <laughs> because like you, you have that time period. Like how long are these people going to be Robin and how old is Batman going to be? But at the same time, I like the idea of a Robin like Dick growing out of the role and becoming Nightwing. And the same thing happening with Tim becoming another hero, another type of Nightwing that's like I'm striking out on my own because it's time. Mm-hmm. I've grown up. I'm – Moving out of the house, I'm going away. You know, like I was, I always equated the pre-crisis evolutions of Nightwing as Dick Grayson growing up and moving out of the house to become his own man. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be that he's a superhero and Dad is Batman. Mm-hmm. And I think Tim would have done the same thing, but I just think they messed up that character toward the end of the run, where they killed Jack Drake, and then it seemed kind of forced because Grant Morrison wanted to create Damien mm-hmm. or bring in the son that Batman had in a story that at the time I believe was not in continuity anyway. And I honestly haven't read much Damien because it's just like, it's kind of shook my head at at all of it. And I had walked away at that point, but my, my take on it is Grant Morrison was the only one who could write the character. It's one of those things. And this, this happens occasionally where a creator invents a character and they have such a specific and unique voice that no other author can capture that character correctly. And I feel like that Grant Morrison was the only one who was able to write Damien. Whether you liked the character or not, mm-hmm. every other writer who attempted, like Pete Tomasi, I just I, I thought this isn't the same character. You do, you're, you're missing what's special about the character. I can see that, and I can see that's probably why Grant Morrison killed him off, mm-hmm. which I think was always part of his plan anyway. Yeah. My other question was, Kind of going back to my idea of like my my preference and like what, how these characters are most iconic. Could Dick Grayson keep the Robin identity as an adult, or did he have to shed the costume and become his own man in order to? I mean, and maybe maybe we're approaching it from the wrong view. Like, does Batman need a Robin, and does that Robin have to be a teenage sidekick? Okay. First question is yes and no. It depends on the circumstances within Dick Grayson's life. Mm-hmm. If he joins the new Teen Titans, then no, he has to become Nightwing because they're the ones who help provide him this sort of sense of there's something else out there besides being at Bruce's side. Mm-hmm. And this really only – it works if Batman fires him, but honestly, if, it, if Batman doesn't fire him and he grows into his own and, and he grows up and then he comes to terms with Bruce – it works really, really well. And it, and Wolfman and Dixon all made it work post-crisis as well, even though I thought the Max Allen Collins, I'm going to have Robin be fired thing was ultimately stupid. But, you know, that, that aside. However, go back to Earth 2 pre-crisis and you have a Dick Grayson who, despite silly costumes at times, never stopped being Robin through his – Teenage years through his adulthood after Bruce had retired, he can't, you know, and, and Mike and Scott over at Tales of the Justice Society can, can give, give you a better idea of, of what this was like than I can. But 
one of the first books, Batman book comics, apparently that I ever bought because I found it years later when I was cleaning out the attic in in a suitcase that I used to take to my grandmother's was the Brave and the Bold number one eighty. It's either one eighty one or one eighty two. It's Batman and Robin of Earth two, okay. and it's it's the story where Batman gets sent over to Earth two. And they fight, and he teams up with the Robin. Bat- Batman of Earth 2 has been dead for, for years. Um, he teams up with the Robin of Earth 2 and Batwoman of Earth 2 to fight the Earth 2 version of Hugo Strange. It's a great, great story. Alan Brennert wrote it. Jim Aparo. Jim Aparo, like at his prime, drew it. Great, great piece. The nemesis back up in the back of the book. You can just skip. So that to me was always like, oh, there's a Dick Grayson who just never stopped being Robin. And then he dies in the crisis. And at that point in the crisis, he's he's basically middle-aged when he's in Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, Paris draws him with a little gray around the temples. Helena Burton, Helena Burton, Helena Wayne is the huntress at that point. You know, so it could go either way. Um, does Batman need a Robin? I've always said yes, and I've always pointed to Nightwing issue 25 as to why. And the conversation that Dick and Tim have about Bruce. Mm-hmm. And Jason and all the other things. And just there's something about Robin that Batman needs, that he needs that he needs it to stay grounded. He needs him to keep going over the edge. And it's it's a there's a father son thing there. There's a there's a meant teacher student thing there. And I think it enriches the character because I think without Robin in Batman's history, Batman could very easily be this one note character of he's always dark and brooding and he's got these problems with this and that. And yeah, he can take down criminals. He's kind of cool and he's got all these gadgets and stuff, but Robin added this dimension to him in some cases, a humanity and a light that I think I always thought was necessary. But then again, I'm a fan of Robin. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of people who will think I'm some sort of blasphemer and say, Oh no, Batman doesn't need Robin. And then I replied to them, well, Batman doesn't quit for eight years. I like almost every version of, of Batman, and I like the Nolan movies, but that's not the only version of the character. Mm. Um, and I recognize that there are problems with those movies. Um, yeah. And and you, you put the nail on the head. I did not like – the third movie was not a Batman movie. It was a movie about what Gotham City would do in the absence of Batman. It was it was Chris Nolan crawling up his own you-know-what is yeah, what yeah. that movie was. And also it was Rocky Three. <laughs> watch Rocky Three and watch The Dark Knight Rises. There are startling parallels between them. Prediction? Pain. <laughs> Pain. Come on, champ. You ain't so bad. You ain't so bad. Oh, oh Rocky Three. <laughs> Baby, so what's the line? Baby, you looking for a real man? Come over to my apartment tonight. I'll show you a real man. God, I watched that movie. And then the fourth one ends the Cold War. Exactly. That was the best part. Rocky, Rocky gives a speech and the, and the Soviet Union collapses. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's this trilogy of movies like that, Rambo, <laughs> which is basically us winning Vietnam. Right. And Red Dawn. Yes. Wolverine. <laughs> So, but no, yeah, you're right. It, well, you've heard my rant about why do Batman fans take this character so seriously that they can't have a little bit of fun with it? And I'm, and I know it's stereotyping like all fans of the character, but you know the type of fans I'm talking about. Where it's I just like there's just so it's like you know, <laughs> lighten up. It's it's the ones who don't see the irony in the Lego movie movie version of Batman. <laughs> yeah, I know. There was a time when I was when I was of that mind where I wanted. 
Batman in an all-black costume and mm-hmm. working on his own in a very street level. Like, I didn't want him out in space. I didn't want him liking Superman. I didn't want him with uh, a kid who was yeah. going to be, like, cramping his style. And I, I grew out of that. And, I, again, I loved Robin when I was a kid, hated him when I was a teenager, loved yeah. him again as an adult. And I... I I like what he represents for Batman, and yeah. I think that's that's important. You talked about merchandising and stuff, and I've heard people talk about what costume they like Batman in. Mm-hmm. Mine has always been the one from the merchandising, the blue, the one that you know. Uh, usually, the merchandising was done by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Prisby's name. name, and that blue cape, the gray, the the yellow oval. Mm-hmm. To me, that has always been Batman. Because that's what I grew up seeing for years and years and years. And I don't mind a lot of the costume changes, to be honest with you. No, I, I, I yeah, I completely it never really bothered me yeah, that much. No. Yeah, but that's when I think of Batman, I think of that one. I don't think of the yeah. movies. I don't think of the the sort of more recent incarnations. I yeah. think of that classic blue and gray one that yeah. I used to see. And the Robin costume, like like I said, I lo- the original Pixie Boots. Dick Grayson costume is iconic and it's classic and it's something that I really like mm-hmm. and I've always loved. And I liked Tim Drake's first costume. Um, the second costume they put Tim Drake in, which was the red and black one, I hated. Yeah. I, don't like I didn't that. like them getting rid of the green. I always liked the green in Robin. And I don't know if they'll ever do a Robin on screen. It's Dark Knight Rises, by the way. Like I cursed at the television at the end of that movie. <laughs> You know what scene I'm talking about. I was like, oh, F you. I was just like, no, 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 no. I mean, there's a way to do Robin, and you could have done Robin. Right. And I know you wouldn't have wanted to put him in the costume, Chris, because that's not realistic. But like I said, I would love to see a live-action Robin, if only for a moment in that costume. Mm-hmm. And not in a joke scene, you know, and not in a, hey, 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 this looks silly, let's try something else scene. But in a in a way that is reverential to the character. Yeah. But maybe he eventually gets a different costume for whatever practical reason. And and I, I think, don't think we'll ever think, see it. I think you've got to make it, it putting him in that original costume, I think you've got to make him pretty young. I think he's mm-hmm. got to be like 10 or 11. Yeah. Any older than that if he's got his bare legs showing, it's going to be distracting and yeah. it, it's it would just kill whatever scene it is. Um, or or it's a case of a of a Carrie Kelly moment from Dark Knight where she makes the costume, yeah. where she buys the costume or makes the costume. So it's a homemade costume and then when he becomes which is what Steph did mm-hmm. when she became Robin for a split second. Yeah. Um and then when he becomes Robin officially, he gets the movie costume, yeah, so to speak, which I think I think would work, and then you're not doing it as a, you know, hardy heart isn't this lame, but unfortunately, the way DC has been going with its costuming and its its look, and I liked Man of Steel, you know, and I like I, it's just that they, they there's this attitude. It's like they're catering sometimes though to that segment of the fandom who laughs at Superman in the classic costume and goes, oh, "Why is he wearing his underwear on the outside?" And you're like, "Who cares?" <laughs> You know, so they, they're catering to that peop- the people who will point and laugh at a costume like that and are unwilling to suspend disbelief. Right. It's the tagline from the original Superman the movie. You will believe a man can fly. Yeah. But you won't accept the costume. It's like, really? You're good? That, that's what you're going to be hung up on? Yeah. He's an alien from another planet who can pick up an island and throw it into the sun? 
and you've got a problem with the with what looks like a red diaper around his waist. Or something. Well, and and this is this is what's funny is that this, those the same people who who bash on Superman and who are Batman fans are the ones who are always like, well, you can be Batman, and it's like, no, <laughs> a. You don't have the bankroll, and right. B, you don't have the upper body strength. Right. Yeah, I, and I know Michael Bailey talked about this in a recent episode. It was either Tales of the Justice Society or maybe one of his other podcasts. Mm-hmm. But the line that Batman is the most human superhero is a lie. And the funny <laughs> thing is, to the people who say that, I would turn to them and point out, no, you can be Robin. <laughs> yeah. That's the point of Robin. Robin was – a way for even from his very beginning, he was the he was the audience in the comic. Mm-hmm. He was the he was ten or eleven years old when he started because those were the kids reading the comic. That was a way to put the kids in the comic. Right. And the same people who'd be like, "I could be Batman," are the ones who would turn around and tell you that Batman doesn't need Robin. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, "No, dingus, <laughs> you are Robin." That's the whole point, and and that's the whole thing. With, I think that was the whole point with a lot of the sidekicks. Now, some of them worked and some of them didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, a number of them didn't. I'm not that familiar with a lot of the Golden Age ones, but I was – until the Winter Soldier came around, I did think Bucky was kind of lame, and I knew there was a reason that he stayed dead. Yeah. But the Teen Titans, I've always loved. I do too, but I, I also – I mean – Robin was the one who was not a clone of Batman. Yeah. Robin had a different attitude and he had a different purpose. Mm-hmm. Speedy was just a miniature Green Arrow. Yes. Wonder Girl, for all intents and purposes, well, for part of it, she wasn't, she was just a younger version of. <laughs> we, we, we don't have the time. <laughs> We don't have the time to get into the origin of Donna Troy. I'm, I'm so disappointed there isn't a secret origin of her in this story because I would love to. We, they, they, That's absolutely for thirty years. For thirty years, they've been trying to explain who the hell these characters uh, are. Not even thirty. It was <laughs> like, wasn't Wonder Girl originally just Wonder Woman? Like a yeah, like it was like the, Wonder Baby. It was it Wonder. Was, it, was, yeah, it, it was it was the Superboy version of Wonder Woman, and then Bob Haney was like, ah, her name's Donna Troy, and it's like, or like it was. I think it was Bob Haney who just like whatever. Right. And made it made it Donna, and and so it just begins from the very start. I mean, somebody could do a whole. I mean, maybe I'll do it one day. A whole podcast episode called "Who Is Donna Troy?" Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully, Wolfman in Paris wrote like one of the absolute best origin story issues ever yeah. in the "Who Is Donna Troy?" story. But like, yeah, we don't have the time. <laughs> we'll be here all day trying to figure that out. And it would be it's it's a Pyrrhic Bird victory. Made literally yeah, it, a clone. Right. It would be a Pyrrhic victory anyway. A victory that costs everything and means nothing. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. Uh, You're right. Robin Robin always was his own person and his own identity, his own character, aside from these these other sidekicks who were basically junior versions of mm-hmm. their mentors. Yeah. Uh any other big thoughts about Dick Grayson, Nightwing, any of the other Robins? I ditched Nightwing about a year or two into the New 52, sometime after Death of the Family. Uh, Not because I didn't like what they were doing. I was just bored with the character. I actually – I really liked the idea from like the first couple issues where Dick inherits Haley's circus. Yeah. And I thought that would be a great hook for him and a way of – 
separating him, making him not part of the New Teen Titans, but not part of Batman's family anyway, and making him his own guy. But that just it it didn't go anywhere because he got sucked back into every Batman yeah. crossover. Yeah, and and it wasn't like with the Teen Titans in the New Fifty Two. I literally walked away before it even started. I saw the previews. I saw that Scott Lobdell, who basically was like the beginning of the end of my X brief X Men journey in the nineties, was writing it. I saw the. I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm done. Nightwing, I held on to, and it wasn't one of those moments of this character is not what I remember, and you ruined it for me. I was just bored. And and so I was like, nah, I'm not really interested in this. I'm paying what three ninety nine an issue or whatever it was at the time, and like I can spend my money elsewhere. Mm-hmm. They'd had Dick be the owner of Haley Circus before too. They had him do it in the nineties uh, after Lonely Place. I just think that he was more of a silent partner, and he would come back there every once in a while. But they never really did a. They were never really explored explored it on like you know a ton of it. I think it, I think it's an interesting angle. It it takes him out of Gotham, mm-hmm. so that he's not just a second-rate Batman doing yeah. the same thing. I think if Dick is going off on his own, he needs to he needs a Bloodhaven. Even though I I thought Bloodhaven was just mini Gotham, um, so yeah. I like I like him being more of a traveler and yeah. having a family like with the circus characters. It's unique. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought that would have been an interesting take. But again, the circus is such a weird, dated idea anyway. I got all of the issue ones when the new 52 launched. Um, my, my buddy and I, we split the cost and we pre-ordered in advance. Wow. So we got every one of the issue ones for not that much money. It turned out huh. to be each individually. Um, and some of them I was surprised at how much I like and some of them were crappy. And all of the Scott Lobdell ones were awful. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't the, miss much. The Red Hood and the Outsiders book was so bad and that was controversial because it had basically Starfire sleeps with, with – um, Roy, right? Roy, after she's been been dating Jason, and everybody's like, she she looks like a tram. She's acting like a horror. This is just horrible depiction of women in comics and everything. And she's just this vapid, horrible character. Mm-hmm. And I agreed with all that, but I actually thought that book was worse for Roy and for Jason huh. because Jason is dating Starfire in the book. <sighs> they re- they rescue Roy from he's about uh-huh. to be executed. And one of the first things that happens is Roy sleeps with um, Corey. Corey. So Roy just showed that he doesn't give a crap about Dick or about Jason. He's willing to betray his friend who just risked his life to save him by sleeping with his girlfriend. And Corey just showed that she's not that into Jason or or the fidelity, the, the loyalty isn't that important to her. And Jason does not care that they had an affair because he's not that into her. All, that's all in the first issue. It was like, wow, I hate everybody in this oh, book. God, that's like some sort of bad reality show. It is. I it's, mean, it's awful. It's, it's it, writing for, it's, it's basically, it's writing for 12 year olds uh, who have a very cynical and narrow view of what relationships are. And yeah. think that's and think the best thing that you can do is have sex with no consequences. Yeah, well, and they've, it's almost like the twelve-year-olds who have just discovered porn. Yeah, too. yeah, and that's and, that's what it was. It's like, so yeah, I I hated that book and I hated that situation, and it wasn't because I didn't like the depiction of Starfire. I didn't yeah. think that helped, but I thought it was more damaging to Roy and Jason. Well, and it comes back to here to this this very story that we just recapped, mm-hmm. where. She and Nightwing had been together for 
a few years at this point, comic book, no, I don't know comic book time, real time, our, our time, since about 82, 83. So they were a very, very serious relationship. And she went out and got married and consummated the marriage with Karis because it's in the book. Mm-hmm. But to her, it was political and she was still emotionally in love with Dick. And so he can't reconcile that because he just – it's not – he doesn't have a knowledge of the context of that. In the same way when she first came to Earth, she didn't have a – she was she was a very powerful, very warrior-like you know, space princess. But she was very, very naive you know, in, in some regards. So there was just a depth to those characters that um, I, this is being kind of played with here that really, really works. That in the way you described that book didn't work at all because there was no depth. If if people want to read better stories of Robin or Nightwing, ah yes, are, where where should they look, Tom? What are your recommendations? Um, I if you want to read some classic Dick Grayson, I, there are some archive editions, although I don't have them, so I've never read them. Mm-hmm. You might be able to find those on the cheap. Uh, there is a Robin the Boy Wonder Showcase, which collects his adventures from the '60s, some of which are really weird because they co-star <laughs> Jimmy Olsen and some of them are this Robin goes to college storyline which is kind of cool there is a there are two showcase presents Teen Titans volumes if you're interested in looking at those I would if you're like well I don't want to read all the sort of goofy silver age stuff you want something that's a little more serious I would go back start with some of the 70s stuff um, maybe the Rasha Ghoul story with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams the Marshall Rogers Steve Englehart Marshall Rogers uh, strain I have the trade that collects called Strange Apparitions, which mm-hmm. was the Hugo Strange story. But the Wolfman, Perez, Titans, um, if you can get it from the beginning, it's worth it. If you are looking for specific parts of it, the stuff leading up to and including the Judas contract, yep. which is the the Judas contract is where he ultimately quits being Robin and becomes Nightwing. But if you go maybe about a year or two back before that, the tension between Batman and Robin or the tension with Robin, because Batman is not really in the book, save for like one issue where they crossed over with the outsiders. It's simmering and he's, it's becoming more, it goes more and more to a boil as it's a really slow burn and Wolfman and Perez did it really organically. And uh, I guess you could probably go back and read the Batman and detective issues, which I still have to do. And then beyond that, you know, Pick up what you want from the New Titans and New Teen Titans, but go to the Chuck Dixon written Nightwing series because it's – I mean go go to year three in A Lonely Place of Dying were, were two essential pieces of the Dick Grayson story. Prodigal, which was right before the Nightwing solo series and the Nightwing solo series in the 90s, which was uh, written by Chuck Dixon for the longest time and drawn by Scott McDaniel as well. And that particular run on that series is just phenomenal. It's It's great, great comics. I was digging for a story that I remember, and I couldn't forget, or I couldn't remember what the story was for the longest time. And I finally found out it was in around 90, 1997. Um, there was another Batman comic came out called Batman Chronicles. It was an mm-hmm. anthology book, and at some point in nineteen ninety seven, they published it was like a it like a deluxe edition or like a mini OGN called The Gauntlet. And it was written by Bruce Canwell and drawn by Lee Weeks. It was like a 60-page book for like $5. Hmm. And it's essentially – it's Robin's final exam for his training to become Robin. Um, huh. Batman sets it up where Dick has gone through all of the training to be Robin. And the final exam is – it's 
basically a game called Manhunt, where Robin goes out and he has to elude Batman from dusk until dawn. Huh. And Batman's going to be chasing him, and he has to stay away, and he has to hide from Batman from dusk till dawn. Now, along the way, he stumbles into this crime. He like gets involved in everything, and the mafia puts out a hit on Robin. So Batman is now chasing him to save him as all these things are going on. It's a really cool story. Uh, it, it's I... kind of obscure. If you can ever find it, um, you might be able to hunt it down a back-issue bin. It's called The Gauntlet. I've never read that off to track that down. Yeah, it's a, it's a fun story. It's got, really good. it's got great work by Lee Weeks. Cool. I think the cover price was four ninety five. I think it was like 60 pages. Okay. Um, All right. Um, Tom, where can people hear from you if they want, if they're so inclined and want to hear more about your podcasts? Hey, I have uh, two podcasts right now over at the Two True Freaks Network. Uh, one of them is called In Country. I am taking an issue-by-issue issue look at the Marvel Comics series The Nam, which is about – it's a war comic of focusing on the Vietnam War. Uh, that comes out bi-weekly. A couple weeks ago, I just put out episode 50, so I'll be at – as of this recording, episode 51. So I'm about halfway through my my run with that. And then my other podcast is Pop Culture Affidavit, which comes out at least once a month. That is everything random in the world of popular culture. One episode might be a movie. It might be music. It might be comics, television, or what have you. And you can find that at 2TrueFreaks.com as well as there's a blog called uh, – my blog is Pop Culture Affidavit and that is at PopCultureAffidavit.com. I, I always forget. I listened to the first two episodes of In Country and I loved it because I, I had read a few issues of the NOM back in the 90s mm-hmm. and – I just I had to shelf that podcast because I was like this is a this is something that I need to get those back issues and binge on this. Cool. And it's like one of it's one of my projects someday in the future. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna track down cool. that book and and binge through the podcast because I love it. I love the premise. I love that you were doing it. The first two episodes that I listened to were phenomenal. Thanks. Um, it's just it it's on it's it's on the shelf. It's at some point someday. It- it, not to toot my horn, it lends itself to binge listening because most of the episodes are only about a half an hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Tom, thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast. Um, I'm sure I'll get you back in the future on another yeah. episode. It was great talking to you. Thanks for having me. This is great. Don't go away, listeners, because we've got some more Secret Origins coming up after the break. Hi, my name is Russell Bragg, and I host the DC Comics Presents show a podcast where I talk about the comic book entitled DC Comics Presents, a comic where any member of the DC Comics universe will team up with one of the world's greatest superheroes, a superhero that needs no introduction, a superhero who, no matter in what era you hear the music for, you will know who the music is dedicated to. When you find yourself in danger, when you're threatened by a stranger, when it looks like you will take a licking... There is someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you. Just call for Super Chicken. Oops. Wrong hero. There, that's better. Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. Superman, DC Comics Presents. In 1978, for Superman's 40th anniversary, DC Comics decided to give him his own team-up book, similar in vain to Brave and the Bold. In this book, Superman could team up with any character in the DC Universe, be it friend or foe, hero or villain. And this is a show that talks about each and every issue. There are 97 issues plus the four annuals. I'll be dedicating an episode to each one individually in date order. If you'd like to find out more about this podcast, go to the show's main website at dccpshow.com. That's dccpshow. 
If you'd like to subscribe to the show, the DC Comics Presents show can be found on iTunes or Stitcher. Another origin and another guest. Making his return to the show, please welcome Paul Scavito. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing all right, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. All right. And Paul is here to help me cover the origin of El Castigo, better known as the Whip. Paul, how did you first discover this character? I discovered El Castigo um, by looking, and I'm not kidding, um, at the cover of Flash Comics. And I believe it was actually a digital image of this cover online. And in a tiny little circle in about halfway up the page is this little image of this guy on a horse jumping over fire. And it says below him, the whip. I could say it wasn't love at first sight, but that would be a lie. <laughs> From this first moment. I knew that this character was going to be one of my lifetime favorites. Um, and I knew nothing else about him. I believe it was you, actually, who told me more um, about El Castigo yeah. from that point forward. Well, what little I knew, because there isn't a lot to this character. Which is criminal. But, it it um, is. It's, um, let's actually get to that. I'm going to give you a little bit of the publication history for our listeners the Whip debuted in 1939 in Flash Comics number one, as Paul just told you. The famous first issue that also introduced the Flash, Hawkman, and as we'll see later in this episode, Johnny Thunder. The creation of John B. Wentworth and George Storm, the Whip's ongoing adventures followed Rodney Gaynor, a rich white guy who pretended to be a Mexican 60 years before Johnny Depp did it. The Whip appeared in the first 55 issues of Flash Comics. Homer Fleming took over the art chores as of issue four and would continue to draw the character until his final Golden Age appearance in 1944 in the pages of Big All-American Comic Book Number 1, a comic whose title sounds like an adaptation of Marvel's The Avengers, translated into Japanese and then translated back into English from the Japanese version. (laughs) 
After that, the whip wasn't seen for nearly four decades. He resurfaced in Roy Thomas's All-Star Squadron, because who else would care about him and where else would he go? The whip didn't even merit inclusion in the other Western heroes who fought and died in Crisis on Infinite Earths. That's what I got. So, Paul, are you ready to tell us the origin of the whip? Absolutely. Um, this is a retelling of the original story, and um, this story was written by Roy and Dan Thomas, and the pencils were done by Mike Gustavich. So our opening image is a fantastic splash panel of my favorite character of all time, the whip. Mounted on a horseback, riding towards us, wearing a black hat, and with his <laughs> amazing whip cracking <laughs> in the background. Um, this opening page um, has three other faces that we don't know. Um, there's a woman in a purple hat who we'll meet later. Um, there's a man with white hair. And there's a mysterious figure on the right-hand side, a handsome young man with black hair. And on this opening page, um, we have two quotes. The first one in Spanish, and we have the English translation that says, Fortune extends her hand to the daring man. And then also, it is also said, Kiss the dainty hand of fate, and she will lead you forevermore. And so we have in this opening page, beginning of the theme of fate and chance um, that are set up for our character of El Castigo. So we open the first page of this comic, and we learn that times have not changed, and that there are poor people, and that there are rich people taking advantage of them. And in this particular situation, we have people who are basically being slaves to a group called the Wealthy Rancheros. But the whip is here to help these poor people. The Wealthy Rancheros have a plan, though. They've put together a chest filled with gold to serve as a reward for whoever can capture El Castigo. All they have to do, they being the wealthy rancheros, is get this cask of money to the bank. But on the way, it's too late already. El Castigo has figured out their plan, and he shows up to steal his own money for the reward. Foolishly, the rancheros try to shoot the whip, thinking him to be unarmed. But El Castigo is never unarmed when he has his trusty whip, which he tells them. But the whip does not keep this money for himself. He donates it to a local church to feed the poor because he is, in fact, Don Fernando Suarez, a nobleman of Spanish descent. We then flip to the modern era, and we see a poor boy praying with a priest. The boy is confessing to stealing money from his boss who had failed to pay him. But then the sheriff shows up and says that the boy has, in fact, murdered his boss and that he and his goons are there to arrest him. We cut to a court scene where Carlos, the poor boy, has lost a court battle to prove that he killed his boss in self-defense. We are told that this is at least partially due to the presence of an all-white jury. The judge believes that poor Carlos has been railroaded, and he declares a mistrial after the verdict has been announced. I'm not quite sure that this is actually how this works, unless the jury has been tampered with, but moving on. <laughs> we'll talk Carlos, about it. <laughs> Carlos gets a new trial in Santa Fe, but he also gets a new benefactor in the form of Marissa Dillon, the daughter of the local newspaper publisher. Marissa is convinced that Carlos won't make it through the night without the local ranchers furious about the mistrial. She believes he's going to be lynched. Then we cut to a polo player and his horse and his beautiful car. This rich polo player has come to a crossroads, and he's trying to figure out if he will go to Seguro or Tecalote. Tecalote, by the way, is not a Spanish word, um, <laughs> and in Portuguese it means you default. <laughs> and so clearly that's not going to be the option. But our so, Okay, so wait. They, yeah. they make a point that Seguro means, means sure thing, yes. and Tecalote means you default. In, say, in Portuguese. <laughs> so I, I think they just made up something that sounded... Although I did find a town in California named Tecalote. Um, so I don't know. Anyway, moving on. So he's sitting in front of the sign. Which town will he choose? 
And how he's going to make up his mind is he flips a coin. And as he's flipping this coin, he tells us that this is how he decides most things in his carefree bachelor life. And luckily for us, it comes in Seguro, which is where the beginning of the story was. And the polar player then reveals that his name is Rodrigo Gaynor, and all he wanted was a rare steak, a place to sleep for him and his horse Diablo. Rodrigo pulls into town, and he decides to stop by the newspaper office to buy a paper, because who doesn't do that? He walks in, and he's immediately assaulted by the town sheriff, who assumes that Rodrigo is there to tell him how to do his job. Rodrigo explains that he wants to buy a paper, which he hopes isn't a crime, to which the sheriff responds by saying that not yet and throws a paper in his face. So, so far, so good. After the sheriff leaves, um, Rodrigo asks Marissa how much the paper is, and she says to forget about it, but that she's going to church, to which Rodrigo offers to drive her, and she accepts. And while they are in there, Marissa tells the padre that Carlos, the young boy from before, is sure to be lynched that night if something is not done, to which the padre bemoans how nothing can be done, but back in the day, they could have called an El Castigo to help them. And he points out that there is his very hat and whip. Padre goes on, but where is there a man bold enough to take up the call of El Castigo? I believe if this was a film, he'd probably be making eye contact with the, our Rodrigo at this moment. <laughs> Mariso basically calls the Padre a fool for believing in old legends, and she storms off. Rodrigo goes outside and flips a coin about whether he should stay or not. And we learn that Seguro does in fact mean a sure thing. We cut to the outside of the jail cell where the sheriff is holding off an angry mob that would like to lynch Carlos. Marissa shows up and tries to get the ranchers to leave, and they tell her this is no place for a lady. We move on. The sheriff is suddenly being tackled by two men, and Marissa is slapping some of the men in the crowd, and then everyone stops to stare at something off-panel. It's El Castigo! <laughs> a man riding a horse jumps into the scene um, with a whip. And he's here to kick in the door to the jail? Well, that's what he does. He and his horse kick the door to the jail open. Um, meanwhile, Marissa has stolen the sheriff's keys, and she runs around to the back of the jail and hands them through the window to Carlos so that he can free himself and hide her house. The angry mob suddenly remembers that they have guns, which they pull out now to deal with El Castigo. But with two perfectly aimed shots, Marissa shoots the guns out of the hands of the men in the crowd, for which she is thanked by the whip who tells her the sheriff is probably looking for his gun. Seeing an angry mob and gunfire and a masked vigilante, the unarmed sheriff runs for cover. But he is not to escape as he is captured by El Castigo to face the truth, which the sheriff balks at. Marissa reveals that she heard the sheriff's stage whisper that he was fake fighting against that mob back there, and that's why he's been captured by the whip. With that, the whip decides that he can't date Marissa and Lady Luck at the same time, and he rides off into the sunset with a whip crack. So, your thoughts on the story? I mean, I, I had fun reading this. I think it's a hysterical adventure. Um, there are a lot of questions I have, and sort of starting off the bat, I mean, if you, have you read more of his stories? No. I have read the same amount that you have. I have read this story from Secret Origins, yep. and I have read the original appearance in Flash Comics number one. Okay. That's all. Like, none of his Golden Age appearances have ever been reprinted that I know of. Um, his more modern stuff from... All-Star Squadron, which was in the 80s, I haven't read. So there, there are you know, questions that come to mind about this guy. One, it doesn't seem like he is actually a classic hero at all, Art Rodrigo, um, because he really lets fate decide whether he's going to help these people or not. And in that way, he's kind of functioning like Two-Face with the sort of coin-flipping gimmick. Well, the one argument to that, like, he does let his coin flip and the chance rule it, but, like, at, at the end, he kind of says, so I flipped for it. Heads, I would stay. Tails, I wouldn't go. 
Mm. I, I think he's he's using that as an excuse, but his heart is into defending the people or doing the right thing. But maybe, I don't know, maybe he's using that as, as a possible out or something if it doesn't work. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, but, I mean, the reason I asked if you'd read any others is that I would desperately like to read the stories of the original Don Suarez mm-hmm. because he sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, well, I think you can read those stories, but the impression I get is that they're actually called Zorro, <laughs> not the <laughs> That's that's really who the character is. He's, yes, he's it is. the character yeah. was a, a ripoff or a very dedicated homage to it. Uh, there's actually there's a line in the story that I like where in the very beginning, like the first or second page, one of the wealthy rancheros says that they're putting together this bounty to catch the masked wolf. Yes. And wolves are historically associated with foxes, and fox in Spanish is Zorro. That's where the name comes from. So ah. I think that I think that was Roy and Dan Thomas kind of saying our little wink and a nod to the fact that this character is basically Zorro. Yeah. Very nice. I mean, honestly, his adventures are a lot of fun. And there's something I just don't trust about um, Rodrigo, although he does have a really cool car. And then there are other questions. Um, why is Marissa such a good shot? Yeah, yeah, yes. Um. Like, uh, okay. Like, why did she need somebody else's help if she if she could just bullseye two guns out of the guy's hands from the hip? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and by the end of that scene, she's stolen the sheriff's keys and his gun. Um, like, it's like seems like she's pretty capable. <laughs> why didn't she become the whip? Why didn't she put on the hat and the whip? or the gun? Yeah. <laughs> um, can we uh, talk about the original? Yeah, we can, and because there are differences, and some of them are subtle, and some of them, I think, are significant. And it's it's interesting because Roy Thomas, he usually didn't make a lot of differences when he was adapting these stories for the 1980s versions. This story does have more differences, uh, not the least of which is the, the character. In the original Flash story, the character's name was Rodney Gaynor, and yes. he might have been of Spanish descent, but it was pretty obvious that he was a white man. Yes. Here they make it a point. They call him Rodrigo, and they make a point of saying his mom was Mexican. Yes. So it feels a little bit more authentic, less horribly racist, um, like <laughs> no. the first one is. Yeah. Um. Well, let's let's get into that. Let's <laughs> let's get into some of the language of the original that oh. thankfully was was changed. Oh man. So I mean, on the first page, top panel. Um, is this fantastic image of the whip, which I love so much because it's just a close-up. Of, it's just a headshot of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but next to him it says, From the time of Cortez, the conqueror of Mexico, to Geronimo, red-skinned scourge of the white pioneers, no caballero so stirred the hearts of the people as did El Castigo, the whip. So, okay, right from the start we're just going to sort of lay out that, you know, minorities are, you know, they look different. But in this first, just they're so the, passionate, so boy, and so. <laughs> but on the on this first page, um, there's this scene with the wealthy rancheros sitting around their giant you know, <laughs> pile of money, um, and it says wealthy rancheros banded together and raised a fortune to fight El Castigo, and then it's written, and I'm just reading it as it's written. With such a sum, we could run El Diablo to earth and hang him. Playing the next, on the next uh, line. <laughs> oh, we put these in the bank. We may say, amigos, the day of El Castigo is over, and it's just oh, it's real. 
I am going to put a scan of this page on the WordPress page when uh, this episode goes up so yep. people can compare them. Yes. You, you need to see this art and you need to read these word balloons to really get the full effect. Of- it's really something. But there's um, there's a lot I actually like aside from the, the this. <laughs> uh, there's a lot I actually like better about the original as compared to um, the one that was redone. There in panel three, we have our first appearance of El Castigo on horseback with his whip. And I just like this introduction here because it's him on his horse and we have this caption that says, but no one knew it was he who single-handed fought the wealthy Mexican landowners to protect the poor peons. And El Castigo is rearing back and he says, stop, in the name of, and the wealthy ranchero who's clearly beating someone says, El Castigo. <laughs> and I'm like, it's just so good. <laughs> I love this character's look too. It would be so easy to, since he's already sort of a ripoff of Zorro, it would be so easy to copy that look. But he doesn't. He's got the open jacket with a white shirt. He's got the red pants. Oh no, he's it's, amazing. And actually on on He looks like a flamenco dancer. Like oh. he, or like a bullfighter. Oh, he really does. If you look on panel two in the upper left-hand corner, um, he's this is one of my favorite shots, sort of moments of him, is he's coming down out of the tree. And we have the <laughs> same moment in the new one. But in that one, we kind of see the trees like in the background and the shots kind of behind him. But in this one, mm-hmm. it looks like he's hanging out of the tree from the whip. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, El Castillo, you're so awesome. <laughs> and... And so he jumps down, right, because he's going to take his own reward from these guys. And he goes, you, you mentioned my name, senores. And shoot him, he's unarmed. Unarmed, did you say? Whip, 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 whip. He whips these guys to the ground. And then he follows it up with wretched horsemanship, which <laughs> is such a fantastic line. It's like he's just whipped these guys, like, in the face. Like, <laughs> like. Panel five is a guy getting whipped in the face. Right? And then he's like, mm. <laughs> you know, you got to ride horses, these guys. Um, and I'm like, I want to spend so much more time with him. Oh. And then, of course, we get into the modern, the, the you know, quotes around that word, modern story. Right. Um, and in this and there, case, yeah, there are ahead. differences. I was gonna, like Carlos Fuentes, the, the boy who's sort of on trial. It is a different crime, and I think the, yes. the the modern retelling for the for Secret Origins is much more intense. He's he's being on trial for murder. Yes, he, he didn't just rob; he committed murder, or he didn't. And if he didn't, whether he killed the landowner out of self defense or somebody else murdered him, that is really not played up. Um, that no. is that is not developed. In the original, he was just caught stealing from the boss who wasn't going to pay him. It was just using him as migrant like labor that he could then, you know, trump up on some charge and throw in jail. So I think both come, there are two problems, Mm -hmm. right? In the first one, I think that the crime that he's being charged with, right? Right. That his story for his reason for committing that crime is more compelling. He's just a poor kid. He's trying to pay, you know, raise money to pay for his family and he steals food to feed them. Right. And that's very, very compelling. And the, the problem is, um, and this is what I think that they were trying to fix in the modern version mm-hmm. is that when the ranchero when the, not the, I guess they're not called rancheros in the in the future when the ranchers show up mm-hmm. to punish him for this for lynching, it seems unbalanced, yes, right, and so the punishment doesn't make any sense. Why would they lynch this kid right. for petty theft you know and even to send a message, it still feels it doesn't feel right, right, mm-hmm. and so I think in the modern one they tried to fix it like well, why would they lynch this kid like 
well, what if he didn't just steal? What if he ended up killing the guy yeah. um, as he tried to get his money? Well, it's like, well, wait a minute. What? <laughs> like, but then, get... then the murder is further complicated by the fact that he goes to trial and he is found guilty. Yes. And then the judge sort of unilaterally just says, this didn't feel right. I probably should have stopped this a long time ago (laughs) if I really had this kind of suspicion that you were being railroaded by an all-white jury. But I waited for them to declare their verdict. So now I'm just going to throw that out and say mistrial and you're going to Santa Fe for another trial. Like, You know a little bit more about the law than I do. That's not a common occurrence, is it? No, and and what I was saying was I'm pretty sure you could only do that – if the jury had been tampered with somehow, mm-hmm. right? If there had been some kind of – because by the time you get to the reading of the verdict, right, the jury's been there, mm-hmm. right, for that whole time. And the judge has theoretically not seen any issues with the with the jury and the selection process has gone through whatever it's going to go through. And so him kind of just unilaterally throwing out the case at this – like, well, so was he going to do that anyway? Like, so if they didn't acquit him, he was going to throw the case out? So it's weird. It's only two panels, by the way, mm-hmm. um, his, his trial and his de- declaration of a mistrial. I don't feel anything for this kid, right? right? Because I also don't know what the circumstances were. And I'm like, okay, like he didn't get paid and so he ended up killing his boss and a jury found him guilty. Like I don't – I'm like I don't have enough context in order for me. And now maybe he was railroaded. We also don't get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think by trying to fix the problem of why does this kid get lynched, Mm -hmm. they created a whole nother problem, um, of this murder trial. That's that's something else that I think this series tended to do (laughs) uh, in secret origins was they tried to correct problems from a different era of storytelling and didn't come away unscathed. They tended to create new problems a lot of the times. Yeah. And I think that that's very clearly what happened here. So we go through. And he shows up, and the first thing he does when he shows up at the jail is he kicks the door in. Now, why is that crazy? Well, the angry mob that was standing in front of the jail wanted to get into the jail. And instead of driving the mob away, (laughs) he kicks the door in. You would think that when he does that, that, you know, they'd be like, Oh, he's he's with us. <laughs> like he's, you know, he wants to kill the kid too. Um, but that's not how they react. Their response is, whoever he is, his horse is kicking down the jail door. We gotta stop him. Isn't that why you're here? <laughs> is to get it? Like he just made it like way easier. Like kids inside, the door's been kicked down with his Diablo horse. There's um, also some question because. Marissa wants the kid to get out of jail. She wants to hide him in her house so that she yes. can take him to Santa Fe to yes. presumably get a fair trial. Right, which is all wildly illegal. Sure. Uh, but, but also, it doesn't seem like Marissa and the new whip, Rodrigo, <laughs> planned this out. So what was his plan of freeing the kid? Was he <laughs> kicking the door to just let the kid run out? Was he going to take him to Santa Fe? Like, there was no coordination for this plan. Okay, so – but here's the thing, and this is another one of these back and forth kind of problems. Mm-hmm. So in the original, yep. right, yep. he kicks the door down. Um, again, crazily, I think. And he frees the kid and he puts the kid on the back of his horse. And he's going to take him to 
to Santa Fe himself with the sheriff in tow. Um, Which was a little bit better because that kid wasn't a convicted murderer. Correct. His crime was stealing fruit to feed his family. So getting him out of town seemed like the good, noble thing to do. Right. In this case... Yeah, I don't feel right about it. And, And the other thing is... Wouldn't he be safer in the jail with El Castigo using his incredible whip to keep people from getting too close to it? I would think. I mean, the idea of jails is they're kind of hard to get into. And El Castigo, it would seem, would offer an extra layer of protection on top of that. And he's getting shipped to the to the place tomorrow. Then there's the sheriff. Yes. Sheriff Todd, who seems to be corrupt. Like, he seems like... Well, okay, so the, so there's a lot more of motivation. If we just look at his behavior yep. in front of the mob, yes, he allows them to kind of push him out of the way, and like they fake, they rehearse a beating where it looks like he was just overpowered, and yes. they get his keys and gun. Yep. Okay, you can say if he didn't mind that they were you know dispensing justice, it's a way of protecting himself. But the fact that earlier in the story he's the one who barges in and says that Carlos killed his boss, yes. And that is never followed up, but that adds a really new dimension to this character. And now we're thinking, is this sheriff not just corrupt, but a lot more sinister? Is he covering his own crimes here? That's We, we, need, right. more, we, we, we need more right. of the story. Right. We need so much more context about what's going on. And, and also, while Marissa says that she heard the sheriff say, you know, how did that look? Did it look good? Right. The argument is not made that El Castigo heard that. Right. So why does he chase down the sheriff? Because he ran away? He doesn't have his gun. The insanely accurate marksman in Marissa, <laughs> Dylan, does have his gun. Mm-hmm. There is a vigil- a masked vigilante on a horse and an angry mob mm-hmm. and gunfire. Yeah. So he runs away. Mm-hmm. That actually sounds like a great plan. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't <laughs> want that of... An officer of the law, but it's understandable in this right. circumstance. Right, right. Um, I did look it up on, uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, that character, uh, the sheriff, did appear in three issues or three different stories. Mm. I mean, unless he was in jail the whole time. I, I, I kind of get the <laughs> feeling that he was slightly a recurring character, like that he stuck around in Seguro for right. a little while. Um, one other change between the two books, mm-hmm. I mean, between the two stories, is that in the more modern one, they aged the sheriff. And I wonder what the reasoning was for that. Because in the original one, he was like this young, barrel-chested, open shirt, like, you know, hothead sheriff. And in this one, he's a balding, you know, maybe a little overweight. And I, and I don't know what the thinking was as to why they needed to do that to him. So when I got to the end of the story, I mean, we talked about how we, we wanted to see more of these stories, more of this character. Mm-hmm. Because I hadn't read any others, I really wanted to know if there was more going on with these supporting characters. Mm-hmm. Um, because I wanted to know more about Marissa, and I wanted to know even more about the Padre. Uh, and it looks like they, they too were kind of recurring characters. The Padre was in a few other issues of Flash Comics in the 40s. And Marissa, it looks like she was in about half of the Whip's adventures. So okay. she was probably that recurring love interest who suspected if she didn't outright know, and I think the implication in both stories is that she does know that Rod is the whip. Because I also got the impression from this story that that the whip was leaving town, like he wasn't going to stick around, but it looks like he, he stayed in Seguro for like 20 or 30 issues of Flash Comics, and then went to New York to fight crime in the last half of his career, which, hmm. okay. well, you know, 
Yeah. All right, change the scene. Yeah. It's a bigger market, you know. It is. You could probably yeah. get more endorsements in New York. That's why a lot of athletes go there. Right. You know, they have horses. Yeah. What did you think of the art in the story in the um, the new one, the Secret Origins issue? Well, let's just start with the um, splash panel on the first mm-hmm. page. Um, I really love the art for that. Him sort of riding at the reader, whip cracking above his head. I thought it was beautiful. The other thing I really liked was I liked that they kept his car from the original. Like, it is the exact same car. I don't know. That made me very happy that the artists made sure that it was going to look um, identical. Beyond that, I thought the art was fine. I'm trying to think if there were any particular other panels that sort of stood out to me. I actually looked up um, because I knew Mike Gustavich more as an inker than a penciler. Mm-hmm. And that is actually what I think most of his career was. Um, for instance, he actually he inked a few other stories in Secret Origins. He inked The Crimson Avenger and The Star-Spangled Kid. Uh, so this was the only one that he penciled. He was the artist on a, a comic. I think he was probably best known for something called The Justice Machine, mm. which was a superhero team book, but it wasn't published by DC or Marvel. It, I think it bounced around a couple of different smaller publishers. And he, he had a pretty decent career in comics for a couple decades, but it mm-hmm. sounds like most of his work was as an inker. And I think when you see these panels, they are heavily inked. I mean, he does they a lot. Really are. Yeah. He does a lot with shadows. When he's, when he's just doing the basic human form, it's pretty simple, um, yeah. but but some of the faces and the way he captures the faces, like on that splash panel, they are beautiful. I think he does a gorgeous job, like in how he shades them. In particular, I would point to I think it would be panel four on page six. Mm-hmm. If I was going to point out any particular piece of art from this from this book, it would be that panel, uh, mostly because you can tell. I mean, you can just use see the heavy use of ink here under the you know the rims of the hats and and on the side of Marissa's face. I love this panel in particular because mm-hmm. I'm fairly certain that this is almost an exact sort of still shot of many Westerns of the spaghetti Western um, sort of frames mm-hmm. where they would do this shot where you've got the reaction of, you know, the heroes looking off screen at some sort of, you know, threat that's coming. And he's, yeah. I think he's captured it perfectly here. It's just a very, I think it's a very iconic, cool little panel in the middle of the, at the bottom of this page. Um, but, I mean, one of the things about the original is that there's just a lot of really funny art in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that got lost with the transition to the new one is there's this moment where he's basically just riding over people um, <laughs> in his horse and he's just whipping them. Um, and it's just this crazy image. And the horse is like, like, what's the horse doing? And, like, um, and there's this line here that says, look out for the hooves and the whip. Like, the horse is kicking people, maybe riding people over. <laughs> I don't know. It's just this insane image of how El Castigo has decided to deal with this mob, which is that he's just going to ride over people in his horse. <laughs> and you get a little bit of that. You know, we've got this tall panel on the left-hand side of him kind of riding through, right? And got him above the moon. That's kind of cool. It just doesn't have the insanity of right. <laughs> of, of the original. So, um, but... Uh, one other uh, difference that I remembered from the original story, um, Roy Thomas took out Rod Gaynor's um, Chinese valet. Oh, wing. Yes. <laughs> Which probably because um, the Crimson Avenger had the same thing. He also had a driver named Wing who was actually used full for something. Um, mm-hmm. And in this story, he really wasn't. And. I get the feeling a lot of characters... I mean, it goes back to Green Hornet. And I'm sure a right. uh, hundred characters created in this era had Chinese manservants. So 
It's just like, uh, okay, we don't we don't need another one. We can no. We, we're probably perpetuating enough stereotypes in this story. <laughs> we can drop one or two. And he doesn't really add anything he doesn't. to other than an uncomfortable feeling. Right. Um, and it actually, it, it gives you the sense that Rodrigo is a little bit more independent, a little bit more of a self-made man, a little bit more of a man of action because he doesn't have, you know, a butler, you know, doing his errands for him. It puts him more in the center of things. Right. You know, and to quote him, he's a carefree bachelor. Um <laughs> By his own admission. Yes. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, there is no place to see the whip in modern comics that I know of. But, Paul, where would you like to see this character? What would you like to see done with the whip? Oh, what I would do with the whip. Um, Okay. (laughs) So this has been – has it been two years? I think so, Um, yeah. Yeah. So that I have been dreaming about how to use this character – and I have this – so you have to kind of set the story up a little bit, which is that the, how I would see um, the whip being used is imagine in a story that for some reason the Justice League all needs to learn how to ride horces, <laughs> right? It sounds ridiculous. You know what? There, in the 60s or 70s, there would have been a story – Bob Haney would have written a story where the Justice League goes to a dude ranch. Yes. They would have yep. made it happen. Yep. And so they all have to, for some reason, right, they have to, who knows, it's a time travel thing. Mm -hmm. They all have to learn, even Superman has to learn (laughs) how to ride horses, right? And so the Justice League has to show up at this ranch, um, and they're brought here by Jonah Hex, because Jonah knows there's this guy who's really, really good at teaching people how to ride horses. Um, And they're all kind of standing around the fence, waiting for whoever it is to sort of come out. And then from the darkness of the barn, we get this whip crack <laughs> and this uh-huh. um, <laughs> and bare chested riding, um, standing on the back of his horse bareback <laughs> comes riding out of the barn. El Castigo. <laughs> and he just comes and he rides around in a circle with his arms crossed, <laughs> um, riding around on the back of this horse. You know, smiling at the ladies, you know, cracking his whip a few times, you know, and maybe doing a handstand um, on the horse, you know, and he would get down and say something sweet and kind to the horse. And, of course, the women of the Justice League would just be enamored with El Castigo. And at this point, he would announce to the group, I'm sorry, but I have to take the ladies for special training. Um, (laughs) To which, you know, Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, Hal Jordan, all of them. Just watch the women walk away with El Castigo <laughs> willingly um, as he leads them off. And none of them are happy about this. And, and there's really nothing they can do about it. Um, and so that's how I would introduce the character. Of so even the might of Superman and Green Lantern and Batman, they are powerless against the whip's seductive <laughs> powers with women. And he's just, he can't be stopped. And... <laughs> And the other thing is that I would make him like the grand sorcerer of leave them wanting more um, in that he has this like love affair with luck. Um, and so I would probably have him have like these intense scenes with like these women. Right. And they, you know, be close, maybe almost to kissing. And you would say, but no, my heart has been taken by another. Um, I cannot you know, betray lady luck. And you know, the women would be like, oh, you can't, El Castillo. Um, um, but how I would use him after that 
um, in this fictional story where I get to write this book about El Castigo um, <laughs> is something like Batman would be like trying to do something like back the Batmobile up a ramp or something. Right. And it wouldn't be working. And then for whatever reason, there would be this whip crack. <laughs> and El Castigo would have some pithy thing to say about how Batman's not treating his car right. Right. And that, you know, you know, much like the woman, you have to gently caress the vehicle into where it needs to be. Um, and of course, Bruce would hate this. Right. And, and how, you know, I would make it funny is that it would just happen all the time. Right. But unexpectedly in like places where like, how did he even get the horse like into like so it's, I, it's a family guy style cutaway where yes. it just yes and and that's how I would use the whip from that point forward is whenever something had gone wrong for the superheroes be it you know Bruce Wayne Clark Kent Hal Jordan whoever there would be this whip crack um, <laughs> and then El Castigo would point out how they had done it wrong um, and 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 everybody would hate him well, all the guys would hate him um, even Clark you can see the good in everyone. <laughs> He can't stand El Castigo. <laughs> um, I love that. <laughs> so that's how I would use the character of El Castigo. Hopefully someday in our dreams the, that story will come true. <laughs> I would buy it every week. <laughs> um, so usually at this point I would ask for recommended readings, but as I said... None of the Whip's adventures have ever been reprinted except for his very first appearance was reprinted along with Flash Comics number one. However, I would say if readers like this type of story, my recommendation, Dynamite has been doing a lot of Zorro books over the last couple of years. Um, specifically, Zorro Year One and Zorro Rides Again. They're written by Matt Wagner. I love his stuff. The stories are great. A lot of the art is by Francesco Francavia, who's one of my favorite current artists working um, so definitely, if listeners like this story, check out the Zorro books by Dynamite. Paul, do you have any other thoughts about this story or about the whip? I think he is one of the most underused characters in the DCU. I think it's great that he's associated with Flash. And maybe, just maybe, someone working at the CW will pick up a copy of Flash number one, look at that cover, and have the same emotional experience I did. And they'll be like, you know what this story needs? <laughs> You know what? As much as I don't like how sometimes the, the DC universe and these characters can be sort of inbred and everybody's related to everybody, if they worked it in where like Cisco's great grandfather oh. was the whip, oh. I would love that. <laughs> that would be so good. <sighs> Someday. Someday. <laughs> All right. Paul, uh, is there any place that people can find you online or do you have any projects that you want to plug for our listeners? Um, I would just plug, shamelessly, uh, Rising Sun Comics, where I am the lead writer on a comic book called um, Armadillo Justice. Um, it hasn't been published yet, um, but you can see some original pages that are on that main website. So, And, of course, you can always find um, Ryan and I at Red and Green Comics. Well, thank you very much for being on the show again. Um, so how – when are you going to – is it a check? that I get for doing this or is it, is it cash? Um,
there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe G.I. Joe against Cobra and Destro, fighting to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe is there! Attention, Joes, this is General Hawk. I have an important mission for you. I need you to listen to G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. It's a monthly podcast where Aaron Moss, codename Head, and two other Joes, Ryan Daly and Kyle Benning, will be reporting on the comic book G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. Previously published by Marvel, currently being published by IDW Comics. We'll also cover the special missions, the yearbooks, order battles, etc. To hear their message, report to gijoe.headspeaks.com or iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can get further information at Facebook, Google+, and Twitter. All under G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. Dismissed. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, is a proud member of the headcast family. The world he never gives up. He'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. Hey, Rob, how would you like to be on the Secret Origins podcast again, talking about the origin of Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt? Just try and stop me, Ryan. Really? No, really. Try and stop me. Really, <laughs> really I would appreciate it because I'm actually going to start my own Johnny Thunder podcast. And it's uh, for some reason, it's called The Loser. I don't understand. But uh, no, Johnny Thunder, you know, growing up, I love the JLA JSA team ups. I live for those things. They were every year. They were like little summer vacations. And every single time, it seemed like Jerry Conway went out of his way to work Johnny Thunder into the story. And then every single time, I went out of his way to make him seem like such a loser. Uh, he always just made Johnny just so hapless that at a young age, I just was like, this, this guy's just a total loot. I keep saying loser, but I can't. I, there's no other word for it. Thunderbolt was cool. But he was just such a doofus. And then, of course, later on in that whole wonderful Black Canary origin story from JLA 219 and 220, which is the greatest origin story of all time, uh, they not only presented Johnny Thunder as a doofus, but also like a bitter kind of an a-hole. So it just completed the, the you know, the, 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 end, the end game for Johnny Thunder of just like, this is a character that nobody likes. So I'm, I'm getting the sense that you don't want to talk about his origin then. I, I really kind of don't. I, I think I'm. I think I'm burned out on Johnny Thunder. Just talking about it for these five minutes. Okay, well, I'll call somebody else. Yeah, why don't I say you get out of here? Okay, uh, Gene Hendricks. Gene has got to be up for this. Let me call him. Hey, what's going on, Ryan? Uh, do you remember when I was talking to you about Secret Origins for the first time and? You said that you'd be up for any character? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love all those, especially the Golden Age ones. Those guys are great. Well, then I've got the perfect story for you. How would you like to be on the episode that covers the origin of Johnny Thunder? Johnny Thunder. Johnny Thunder. R R Johnny Thunder. You have the Golden Age Flash. You've got the Spectre. You've got our man. And you, Johnny Thunder. That's how little you think of me. Really? Gene. 
no, 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 no. I'm done. That's it. Oh, come on, buddy. No. You the, said anything. I said anything. I didn't think you meant the the proto Jimmy Olsen there with his wish fulfillment device. I mean, the only the only reason Giant Thunder exists is to give us Black Canary. No, I'm done. That's it. Okay, let's try Greg. Greg will do it. Yes, sir. Hey, man. How would you like to do the Secret Origins podcast story about Johnny Thunder? I don't know if I have much to say, honestly. I mean... No. Hello? Hey, Shag. Ryan? Yeah, yeah. Hey, man, how's it going? Good. Um, you know how you told me you'd always be geared up to talk about a story on Secret Origins? Secret Origins? Hell yeah. Absolutely. Well, what do you say to Johnny Thunder and his amazing Thunderbolt? Oh. I thought you were going to talk about the Cowboy Johnny Thunder. The, the one from JSA? Yeah, yeah. Are you f***ing kidding me? The- we, we went through this, Ryan. You, you asked everyone in a Facebook chat message if they would do it. And no one wants to, man. Get it through your f***ing head. Nobody wants to cover Johnny f***ing Thunder, okay? DC Direct wouldn't even bother making an action figure of him when they made every other JSA member. He's not worth it. He's not worth my time. In fact, I'm quite frankly pissed off you even asked. So, this is a hard no? Oui, allô, Cisco de l'appareil? Cisco? Oui? Hey, hey, it's uh, Ryan, man, from Secret Origins Podcast. Ah, okay, why, Ryan, why? Um, you know, I mean, you've been such a terrific guest on the show so far. Could I possibly get you to come back and talk about Johnny Thunder? Johnny, John, uh, um, the Thunderbolt? Yeah, yeah, Johnny Thunder and Thunderbolt. Oh, ben, tabarnak, non, don't, normalement, je la marde comme là, je n'ai fait assez. J'ai fait, j'ai fait plusieurs, non, j'en ai fait plusieurs des podcasts avec toi, j'en ai fait, oui. I, I, I couldn't really catch that. Ok, je vais me répéter. J'ai dit mange la merde. Je fais pas des personnages qui sont comme tu me prends juste comme un fucking bouche trou. Je suis juste un bouche trou dans ton affaire. Fait que je fais tout le temps des personnages qui sussent. Uh... Johnny Thunder sus. Do you understand? Johnny Thunder, il sus. You know, what? I think I did understand that. So, thanks, man. I'm gonna go. Yeah, pas de problème, bye. Okay, well, I wonder what the Rolled Spine guys are doing tonight. And uh, Drunkula actually wanted you to do a Secret Origins at some point. Okay, for who? The character that nobody else likes enough to do the origin for. Martian Manhunter. Ha! No, a, a Golden Age character named Johnny Thunder. Johnny Thunder? Why do I feel like I know... He wore a green suit with a bow tie and he had a pink genie. I've seen Aladdin. We can we can do a. Oh, hold on! I got a text. Oh shit. Frank, while he's thinking about it, do you have any other ideas? People I should ask. Anybody who you think might do this? 
I want to hear Cindy Franklin do a Secret Origins with you. Without Chris, it's just you and her. I want to see how that shit works. Actually, I already asked Cindy, and I don't think it's going to work out. Oh my flipping gosh, that was awful. I just read that, and you owe me money. <laughs> you owe me money. Yeah, I don't. I don't think she's interested. So anyhow, so hey, did you? It guys, like- seriously, I'm up against the clock here. I got to know straight answer. Do you want to do the origin of Johnny Thunder? No. <laughs> then what am I supposed to do? Let's throw on some more careless whisper. That was a mistake. What's wrong? Ah, the Secret Origins podcast. I'm having trouble finding a guest for this one character. Is it Batman? What? No. Why would I have trouble finding someone to talk about Batman? Is it Aquaman? No, it's... People like Aquaman more than you think. Really? Who's your guest on the Aquaman episode? He didn't actually get an origin in this series. Uh Uh-huh. People like Aquaman. All right. So who's the character you need? Johnny Thunder. Johnny Thunder? Is he a 50s street racer? No. Is he a greaser? No. I don't want to talk about Johnny Thunder. You might like him. He summons a genie when he says a magic word. Shazam? No. Say you. What? Say you. Say you? Yeah, it's a Bodnesian spell that's phonetically similar to the phrase... I'm already bored. Well, then I'm really, truly desperate. What's new? You know, the last time you had me on, things did not go so well. What are you talking about? Captain Marvel was one of the most popular episodes. Yeah, because everybody hated it. They hated me. Because I bashed Roy Thomas for copying a script from 1940 and treating it like it would still appeal to readers in the 80s. Well, see, a lot of the listeners are very passionate about that character. They were upset that you didn't come to the table with the same level of passion. That's One of them called me a neophyte. I'm sure he meant that lovingly. Of course. So, whose childhood hero do you want me to piss on this time? Lois Lane? No, no, no. It's a guy named Johnny Thunder. If I do this... Are the legions of Johnny Thunder fans going to attack me in the comment section? Oh, absolutely not. He doesn't have any fans. Nobody else wanted anything to do with this guy. That's why I'm asking you. You know, there was probably a better way for you to have said that. If you're looking for a loving man, a loving man, say, say, I am. If you're looking for a hugging man, a hugging man, say, say, I am. We're back, and we're talking about the secret origin of Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt. Joining me for this segment is Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. How are you doing, Nathaniel? Uh, A little odd to be back, but I'm doing pretty good. No, you were the most demanded guest that I could find. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning you could not find anyone else. Either way. (laughs) Well, we're talking about Johnny Thunder. Nathaniel, what is your experience with this character? The only reason I know that he exists at all is because you mentioned him on an episode of Flowers and Fishnets because 
uh, Black Canary actually originated from one of his strips. So that's the only reason I even know the name. I've never read this guy ever. Well, A, glad that you were listening to the Flowers and Fishnets podcast. You're welcome. Free plug for your other stuff. There you go. I need it. Um, Two, you're still in okay good company because not a lot of people read about or care about this character. And we're going to find out why right now. The origin of Johnny Thunder is written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Mike Clark, inks by Dave Hunt, letters by Augustin Moss, and colors by Carl Gafford. This story is adapted in the Roy Thomas style from Johnny Thunder's original story in Flash Comics number 1 from 1940, written by John B. Wentworth with art by Stanley Ash. The story opens with a half-page splash showing Johnny Thunder riding his magical genie, Thunderbolt, like a drunken buffoon coaxed into riding a mechanical bull. Within the third dialogue balloon of the page, the Thunderbolt is already making fun of Johnny and telling us how worthless he is, setting the tone for what's to come. On a summer night in New York, 1918, Simon B. Thunder comes home from his job as a bank clerk to find the police car parked in front of his house. His wife, Mildred, is in hysterics claiming a gypsy stole their baby. Well, it wasn't gypsies. It was a group of Bodnesian cultists who bring baby Johnny aboard a ship bound for their homeland of Bodnesia in Southeast Asia. The kidnappers color Johnny's skin and hair darker so that the appearance of a blonde Caucasian infant in the company of three Asians won't arouse suspicion, even though the coloring on this page makes it appear the Bodnesians have blonde hair too. At Bodnesia, the kidnappers bring Johnny to the Temple of the Seven Gates. Some exposition tells us they kidnapped Johnny because he was born at 7 a.m. on the seventh day of the seventh month of the year 1917, and that's important to their religion. The priest of Asor places baby Johnny on the altar, puts a world heavyweight boxing championship belt on the boy, and pronounces over him seven times the sacred word Say You. It's spelled C-E-I-U, but meant to be pronounced, as I just did, like the English phrase Say You. The whole ritual is meant to give Johnny Thunder the power to rule the world, a power that would manifest when he turns seven years old, because, you know, that number again. Unfortunately for the Bodnesians, a few years prior to Johnny's birthday, their whole kingdom is overrun by the neighboring kingdom of Agolia. One of the kidnappers escapes with Johnny and takes him to a fishing village in Borneo. When he's five, Johnny unintentionally escapes from his kidnapper by boarding a tiny sailboat that was cast away by strong winds and drifts 12 miles into the ocean, where the boy is eventually rescued by the crew of an American freighter. The captain of the ship takes a liking to the five-year-old boy, and we just have to infer what that means. He notices Johnny has a birthmark and that the boy is naturally blonde, which I guess is reason enough to explain why they take the kid to America instead of bringing him back to the closest island. When they reach New York, the first mate is tasked with taking little Johnny to the police. Instead, he hands him off to the first crazy man he sees, who just so happens to be a streetcar operator, who also just so happens to claim to be the boy's father. Yes, Simon Thunder, who lost his job at the bank and now pilots streetcars, is finally reunited with his firstborn son. He brings Johnny home, where he and his wife put the trauma behind them by having other kids. The week that Johnny turned seven years old, terrible rainstorms showered the world, but strangely not a drop ever hit the Thunder household. Half a world away, the priest of Asor and the surviving Bodnesians realize that their ritual succeeded. Johnny Thunder now has a power that will come to him for one hour at a time when he says the magic words say you. 
Asor dispatches his agents to go into the world to find Johnny. They must bring him back so they can control his power, or kill him lest the power be used against them. Fast forward to 1940. Johnny Thunder gets a job as a window washer. When he forgets to bring a sponge, he asks the man next to him if he can borrow his. Not knowing the guy's name, he addresses him with, Say you! A phrase that sounds phonetically identical to the magical incantation. The phrase summons the magical genie Thunderbolt, who streaks down from the clouds just as the washer next to Johnny slips and falls to what should be his certain death. The Thunderbolt carries Johnny down into the street where he manages to catch the guy. Johnny is oblivious to the Thunderbolt, but a group of Bodnesians are anything but oblivious to Johnny. They witness the miraculous save and deduce that the blonde hero must be the child of prophecy they've been searching for for 16 years. Later that day, the Bodnesians attack Johnny and take the belt that he's been wearing for two decades. Johnny says, Say, you can't have that, give it back. And that sounds close enough to say you, that the Thunderbolt genie arrives to help him. Thunderbolt beats up the Bodnesians in the process, causing enough of a disturbance that Johnny Thunder gets fired. The story ends with the Thunderbolt explaining how Johnny can summon him whenever he says the magic word, but he can't tell him what the word is, meaning Johnny will just have to stumble ass backwards in and out of trouble for the next couple of years before he gets control of the power. And that ends the origin of Johnny Thunder. So what were your thoughts on this story? You know what? You're going to hate me. I, I actually enjoyed this. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> all right, explain. Okay. Basi- and you know what? I All of your listeners are going to hate me because I, in explaining why this works, I'm going to have to go back to why uh, the Shazam story didn't work. So I'm going to get to rag on that a bit more. But here's the quick version as to why this works. This thing was able to explain to me as a reader who knew nothing about this what it was and what it was doing and what its tone and intent was very, very, very quickly. And that any piece of entertainment, whether it is a comic book, a novel, a movie, whatever it is, it has to establish what it's trying to do quickly because the longer it takes to make clear its intention, the bigger the potential gulf between what you thought you were getting coming in and what you actually got. And there's usually a gap there anyways, but if if something can establish to you quickly what it's doing, then you have a better chance of overcoming that gap and getting on the same wavelength as whatever the thing is. That did not happen for me with the Shazam book because I would look at the art and I would read the words and the, the two just never gelled. And by the time I finally kind of wrapped my head around what it was trying for, it had already lost me. This story... Second page, second panel. I'll read the exact words. This is after Johnny has been kidnapped and his mother has you know, said gypsies have taken him. It's, it's actually the top two panels. So the first panel on the second page, at the bottom of that panel, it says, she tried to beat up the policeman investigating the case. That having proved fairly ineffective, she tried fainting. <laughs> and as soon as I read that, That just tuned me into the wavelength of what this thing is, and it got me on the same page. And I was just able to enjoy it because this thing knows that it's ridiculous and it's stupid. And I was able to enjoy it because I'm like, oh, good. You are aware of how dumb you are, and so I can just kind of go with this ride and have fun with it. And I think in terms of the the way the story is told, it's actually pretty fun and quite clever, especially in the way that it kind of uses meta humor with Thunderbolt 
narrating the story. Because Meta wasn't really going on too much in superhero comics at this time, I don't think. I mean, we were we were a decade away from Deadpool, and even She-Hulk wouldn't start doing the Meta thing till '89. I, I think Roy Thomas actually did something terrific and really different from what he had been doing in the stories. I mean, for Roy Thomas, and you you picked up on this right away back when we were covering Shazam, uh, and it's been a source of tension as I've been going through the series, uh, sometimes more than others. For Roy Thomas, adapting a Golden Age story is copying the plot beat for beat and occasionally updating the language if the 1940s text was, really, if it was politically incorrect. That was the most that he usually did. Here he actually does something different. The plot is the same, but he uses the sarcastic voice of the genie to narrate the story, which allows him to comment on how ridiculous and how foolish the original story was, while still being faithful to the source material. Yeah, and and I think that w- that was the perfect balance to strike with this, and 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 it falls into that sort of category of entertainment that I always find fascinating, which is good execution of a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Which is always something that that I love. Like a recent example, you I I just gave back to you. You had lent me a bunch of uh, of New Fifty Two stuff, uh, most of which I was either neutral on or hated. What I liked was the Batgirl stuff, but on premise, I don't like that they took Barbara Gordon out of the wheelchair and made her Batgirl again because she had developed so much as Oracle, and we had perfectly good Batgirls after that. Mm-hmm. So I think making her Batgirl again and taking her out of the wheelchair was a bad idea. But it was executed so well, I was able to overlook that. And some other examples, like in movies, the first Pirates of the Caribbean, that's a terrible idea. That's the worst idea ever. But it's an extremely well executed, it's the best possible version of that bad idea. Did I give you the pages of the original Johnny Thunder story from Flash? You did. Yeah. You did. And pretty much and you're right. It's it it is beat for beat the exact same thing. The only difference between this and the original version was that in the original version it does not make clear that it is a genie doing this stuff. It just it just seems like when Johnny after he says the magic words for an hour whenever he says something that just happens. Mm-hmm. The thunderbolt is not a physical presence. Only what he makes happen occurs. Right. I had to do some research into that. The Thunderbolt genie was not originally part of the story. Um, For a while, Johnny just had kind of magic that appeared as a lightning bolt or a puff of pink smoke. The genie wasn't uh, a separate entity, really, and Johnny didn't have control of it for a while. I don't know how long it took, but maybe it might have been like 10 issues or something before the genie really started to manifest. And even when Johnny did learn how to summon the Thunderbolt, he still often did so on accident. And he just said, say you a whole lot. And I guess that was common in the forties. Well, it, it's common in the voice, but again, with the wonderful sarcastic tone, the, the thing is quick to point out that, you know, he says it. He's, he's what, 23 or whatever, that he says it for the first time since he was five. <laughs> yeah, tons of weird coincidences and things that don't make sense. I mean, like, like I said, it, if on its face, this is all ridiculous. But because it knows it's ridiculous, I, I still have fun reading it. I think the other major difference between the original version and the updated one for Secret Origins, the original story was 10 pages. 
The Secret Origins version is nine, and I think that's the only time the series ever truncated one of their stories and made it shorter for the Secret Origins version. Well, it made it shorter by page count, but they pack a lot more per page mm-hmm. than – not in every case, but you know, there are a couple of, of pages on the Secret Origins version where they, they really pack quite a bit into that. So I, I think that losing a page was really just basically being able to condense – one or two extra panels into each page they were using until it ended up that they just lost a page worth of stuff. Today, if this story was told today, is there any scenario in which the mom doesn't end up in jail if she claimed her baby was taken by gypsies while her back was turned? I did. <laughs> Wouldn't we just assume that she killed the baby out of neglect or and hid the body or something? It's. I mean, that's that that that's on the Lifetime Network every other <laughs> week. So yeah, I'm pretty sure. The other thing that I'll say, and again, just because I, I don't want to miss a chance to piss people off, comparing it in another way to the Shazam story, the art I, I want to just touch on briefly. Because the art, is, it's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing remarkable about it. There's nothing really wrong with it either. Although I do want to point out, like, the one panel when the captain rescues him, mm-hmm. uh, this is the last panel on page four, that is the creepiest <laughs> face that's a, that's that's a weird image. But aside from that one specifically, not, nothing about the art really stands out. But I actually think that is to the benefit of this story, given what it's trying to be and the tone it's trying to go for. Mm-hmm. And I even kind of mentioned it before. Part of the reason I, I was not able to tune into Shazam's wavelength was that there was this um, – oh, God. There, there was just this disconnect between the art – and what was written. And the art in the Shazam one was gorgeous, but it was almost too good because it was at such a high caliber, but the script and the dialogue specifically was of the caliber of something written in the 1940s that the two just never gelled. Now, the art in this, and I can definitely tell because you you sent me the original stuff, is obviously much more modern than the original work was, but it is not in the highly detailed fashion that comics at the time were starting to trend toward. It's a bit vaguer. It's a bit more in line with things like Mary Worth and those sort of um, soap opera-like daily comic strips Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that used to be a thing. It's like just the right balance of not realistic enough that you would ever take it serious. Like looking at just the art of the Shazam one, if you strip the dialogue out and you just looked at the art, it's gorgeous art and it's art that you look at and you take seriously. You strip the, the, the words out of this, you look at the art, and you still don't take it seriously, which means that when you stick the words back in it and how ridiculous it all is, it all works and it all flows. For me with the Shazam, it was a bit like if you saw a Wayans Brothers movie that looked like it was filmed by David Fincher. <laughs> I, th- I mean, that's sort of the disconnect. Like, objectively, th- it looks gorgeous, but it's the wrong look for what mm-hmm. you're doing. I agree with that, and we were we were on the same level. I thought Jerry Bingham's art in that Shazam story was beautiful, but just not fitting for the character, let alone the story. I wouldn't say it wasn't fitting for the character. It wasn't fitting for the way that Roy Thomas was telling it, which was in a very flippant, mm-hmm. you know, very pulling the 1940s feel to it. It, it was the wrong art for telling the story in that way. And I suppose that's the other thing. I'll, I'll try and pull my neck out of the noose slightly in terms of the Shazam stuff. I was never down on the character. 
I like Captain Marvel, and I think he's a good character. And I wasn't even down on the plot of that. What I was down, basically, was the writing. And when I say the writing, I mean the word choice, mm-hmm. the dialogue, the descriptors. That's what I couldn't get over with that. But, you know, where whereas this thing, as much as I did enjoy this story... I would never want to read anything else with his character. He's a, he's a stupid character. Like, I, I get, even as I say I enjoyed this story, I get why nobody wanted to talk about this character. He's not a character I would ever want to revisit, even though I enjoy the story. He's a stupid, he's an idiot. I mean, to the point that he thinks he's figured out the, the, the word at one point, but he thinks it's holy cow. Right, right. So he he's like he goes against the, these guys who are one of them's coming after him with a knife and he says holy cow stop thinking that it's going to fix the situation but of course it doesn't because he doesn't know the the real words mm-hmm. um, so you know he's an idiot and I I'm sure if I was reading you know something like JSA and he stumbles in with his genie I would get really annoyed and be sick of this character really quickly. So, you know, as much as I, I as I say this story is good and fun and works, I would never need to see this character again, and I get why nobody likes it. And I think you kind of touched on it. Was This character, I, I think he would work in his own regular strip in Flash Comics, which was an anthology book. It tended to have anywhere from four to six or seven stories in every issue. This one, Johnny Thunderstrip, was intentionally screwball. It was a comedy. The character was meant to be a doofus who stumbled into danger and then haphazardly said a magic word that got him out of danger. And it was just a kind of recurring joke that they repeated every month. And it's fine. I think when you put him into a group setting like the JSA, if you're trying to tell serious stories about a group of heroes who need to come together because the threat is that serious... Then you put him in it and everything comes to a screeching halt. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the only way a character like this works is if he is allowed to set the tone for the entire thing, um, which obviously this is. And it's, well, actually, really, Thunderbolt sets the tone because he's narrating. But, the, you know, Johnny being an idiot, the entire story is built around that. You insert a character like this into somebody else's thing and, and basically he becomes Jar Jar Binks. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, all right. Hang on, I'm gonna I'm gonna need to take a break for a second. But that's not that that is not an unfair comparison, which is the worst thing to say. I, I just said a trigger word. I'm sorry. No, I just I'm, I'm dizzy for a second. Uh, <laughs> but but setting the tone, I think, is actually it, that's another good point because he did in the earlier mid 2000s. I, I don't know when it came out. Maybe like 2004, 2005. There was a mini series called. JSA Strange Adventures and the premise was that Johnny Thunder after he had left the Justice Society basically washed out and he had nothing else of value to offer he decided to be a novelist and -hmm. he was going to write the adventures of the Justice Society and he does kind of it it turns into this weird story where he's trying to tell their stories while they're getting involved in new stories and then he's integral into the plot with a new villain I haven't read it because why would I want to read a story with him as the central protagonist? But I think that is kind of the point. It is a story of the JSA in one of their you know great heroic moments as seen through this guy who was kind of tangentially their friend, but really never quite made it. See, that, I mean, you know, obviously you haven't read that, I haven't read that, but that kind of approach could work, and that's really the only kind of approach that could ever work. 
with with a character like this if you're going to insist on trying to integrate him into a greater universe. Right. Hey, if any of our listeners have read JSA Strange Adventures, leave a message in the comment section. Tell us how it is. Would you recommend it? Would you not? Is it... Does it work with him as the main character, or if not the main character, at least as kind of our view viewpoint character? Let us know. Going back to the art a little bit, I think you're right. This art does look a little bit more old-fashioned, uh, particularly in the first couple pages when it's mostly told through flashback. There's a lot of interesting use of color in those pages. Um, it seems like almost every page has a dominant color. Well, yeah, that first one is is heavily tinted blue. The next one's green. Right. After that, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a light blue and a white. Yeah. Then we've got pink dominating. Yeah, I was looking into the artist. I don't really know much about Mike Clark. It looks like he only worked in comics for about ten years, mostly at DC and mostly with Roy Thomas. Um, I could only find that he he only did like two Marvel stories, one of which was a She Hulk story. But other than that, I don't know if something happened. I don't know if he went into another profession. Again, if one of our listeners knows more about Mike Clark, let us know. That's pretty much all I got on this. I'm not sure there is much more to say. I mean, it, it's it it's a quick, breezy, entertaining little read about a character that nobody, nobody should ever I, really care about, but they make a fun little read out of it. I, and I think that's probably the best thing to say, is that this story, the way it's told is far better than it probably had a right to be and better than the character deserved. Yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap it up on. Okay. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more about your thoughts on comics or pop culture or really anything? Um, well, yeah, I've got the YouTube channel, Council of Geeks, but, uh, you know, video is a dying medium. I think we all know that. <laughs> Clearly. And, and you know, the obviously the very positive feedback I got from my last appearance on this, I am actually going to be launching some podcast projects, um, starting with a Council of Geeks podcast, which is basically going to be an unedited version of, of stuff that goes up on the YouTube channel every now and then. When I have you or Paul or Jay or, you know, a group of people sitting around talking about stuff, we usually end up with 45 to 90 minutes worth of material that I then edit down to between 10 and 20, but I am going to start putting basically the raw, unedited, us going off on tangents version out there as a podcast. I That hasn't launched yet. That'll launch soon. And, and keeping up with that can be done, you know, through the same Facebook page as the, uh, as the YouTube channel. So Council of Geeks on Facebook uh, will have updates on that. Um, there will be a, a blog spot, uh, councilofgeeks.blogspot.com. Um, there's nothing on there yet, but I have set it up and reserved it. And I've got another project that I'm very excited about, but I'm I'm not sure if it's going to be ready to launch by the time this goes to air, so I don't want to get into it too much, but I I will say this. No, I won't say I won't say this. <laughs> Never mind. When the when the show is ready, we will absolutely advertise it here on Secret Origins and my other blogs or my other podcasts. I'll make sure to promo it out. Fantastic. Nathaniel, it was great talking to you. Thank you for uh, I don't know if it's the guts or if it's the naivete or just not having anything else going on, but thank you for being on this section of the Secret Origins podcast. I, I just love the opportunity to come back and piss some more people off. You know I jump at that.
lots of feedback for the show. Once again, it's great to hear from all of you. Episode 12 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages, Diabolu Frank, Doug Zavisha, Eli, Greg Arugio, The Hammer Strikes, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Paul Scavito, and Trekker Talk. The Facebook page received new likes from David Sopko, Justin Berg, Kevin Barrett, Richard Field, and Russell Burbage. Episode 12 specifically got likes and shares from Anthony Durso, Arthur Canning, Clinton Robson, David Sopko, Earth Destruction Directive, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Greg Rougeau, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Igor Glushkin, Jeffrey Brown, Justin Berg, Keith G. Baker, Kevin Barrett, Kyle Benning, The Pulped Pixel Podcast, Richard Field, Russell Burbage, Shag, Sean Merrick, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Gord Tolton said, Fury? Nope. Never worked for me on any level. How this was a less confusing resolution to the Lita Trevor lore than leaving the Golden Age Wonder Woman alone is a bigger mystery, especially given that it became even more convoluted as time went on. A whole new Trevor family, the inclusion of Miss America into the mix, and the whole story of how this Fury becomes later Fury's mama has never really been told anyway. And Clinton Robinson said, Why do I think Mary the Knight is a bad joke song to be played at weddings for Batman and Catwoman, Monel and Shadowlass, or even Cosmic Boy and Night Girl? Uh, David Sopko has been listening to earlier episodes and telling me how much he enjoys the show and what episodes he's looking forward to the most. He said, I remember buying every issue of this book as it hit the stands. Loved catching up on newer characters and learning the origins of the Golden Age characters. And David just recently started a Blue Devil podcast with Justin Barlow. The show is called Shout at the Devil. You can hear the first episode on SoundCloud. Although, spoiler warning, they do thank Shag at the beginning for sort of inspiring the show. I don't know what they talk about after that because I stopped listening. (laughs) No, seriously. I haven't heard the full episode yet, David, but I think it's a really cool idea and I'm excited to listen to it. Like, maybe when I finish this episode... Burt Barnard asked when I was planning to cover the annuals. Are you going to do them chronologically or at the very end after all of the regular issues? I am really looking forward to annual number one. I am one of the rare fans of Captain Comet and can't wait for you to talk about him. Uh, A few others have wondered about this. The plan is to cover the series based on the publication release schedule. So the first annual will be episode 18, as that issue came out between issues 17 and 18 of the main series. Also very cool to hear that Bert is such a fan of Captain Comet. I hope to hear some insightful comments from him after that episode comes out. I got a ton of great new comments on the WordPress page. As always, I am cherry-picking the bits from each comment. As much as I would love to read every word, you guys contribute so much that I need to be a little judicious in what parts I respond to on the episode. But the comments are great, and I encourage everyone to visit the page and see what everyone's talking about. Right off the bat, we got a few more comments about episode 11, the Power Girl and Hawkman episode, that came in after the last episode was released. Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine podcasts, including Marvel Superheroes and the Underguides, as well as the Idle Head podcast, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and the Power of the Atom podcasts. He came back for three more pages of comments because he only talked about the Power Girl origin before. He describes at length, of course, his history with the character of Hawkman and how he came about collecting Hawkman's books from around Zero Hour, Hawk God era, and then going backwards. He said... The ultimate result of accumulating all those comics was to come away finding Hawkman, 
just okay. I'd always expected that between the visuals and the weaponry that Hawkman would be a more visceral character along the lines of a Wolverine. Instead, he was a taciturn detective who used his weapons sparingly in stories that tended toward modest, code-approved superheroics and some politically tinged sci-fi. Despite his conservative, rageaholic reputation from the Justice League books, he was mostly mild-mannered with a bit of a judgmental posturing, nowhere near as fun as a Guy Gardner type. I'm more politically inclined toward Green Arrow, but I grew to hate that character for his big mouth and lousy treatment of Black Canary. Hawkman treated his wife with all the respect she was due, and when he did make some noise, it usually lent a welcome conflict to the story. However, Hawkman lacked personality, and often blundered from his hot-headedness, so I actually prefer Hawkgirl-slash-woman in most stories. Uh, I kind of agree there, and that's why I want Hawkman to be two different characters. I want the Justice Society Hawkman, who is the reincarnated Egyptian. That one, I think, would be quicker to anger, more savage, more visceral, as Frank says. That's the one that would pick up a mace and smash someone's face in, or throw a spear right through a super crook's leg. The space cop version of Hawkman I would see being quieter and a bit more cerebral. I'm just thinking about this now, so hang on, this this might be utter nonsense. If I were to do it, I would make Hawkman the Earth 2 representative of the Justice Society, and Hawk Girl or Hawk Woman just the Earth 1 representative for the Justice League. Maybe there is no Hawkman from Thanagar. Maybe Shea Thal came to Earth on her own. I guess that's more or less like what they did with the Justice League cartoon version. But maybe they don't have romantic counterparts of their own Earths, or on their own Earths. Maybe they're destined to only come together during those like fleeting JLA-JSA team-ups, and they can never stay together for long. I don't know. I, I love them both together, and I love them both individually. I, I don't know. I'm just... Anyway, that's just some random spitballings. Let's get back to Frank's letter. He went on talking about the Shadow War miniseries and the ongoing that followed. As much as I liked Luke McDonald on Justice League of America, I think he was meant to draw that Hawkman series for the betterment of the DC Universe. He totally gets the long, lean, laid-back posture of Kubert, and he can draw that ridiculous helmet not only credibly, but with dramatic gravitas. Look at the second panel on page 15, where a man wearing a fake beak about the size of the top third of a traffic cone looks like he's about to wreck a joint. The action is grounded so that I believe that crossbow coming to a gunfight was the real deal. And the last thing he says is, I usually don't critique the voice talent, but it was great to finally hear one of my best internet buddies, Ange. And Luke has the butchest throat in our family of podcasters, so I particularly enjoyed listening to this episode. Totally agree on those last points. Michael Kiroscuro said, I love the Ordway cover. Ordway is one of several artists from my youth that I didn't appreciate at the time. Some others include Gil Kane and Carmine Infantino, both of whom were much older during my youth and definitely not of Ordway's generation. But in recent years, as I see more and more of their work online in sketches and old scans like this, along with the back issues I scoop up here and there, I have done a total 180 on these guys. Now I'm excited any time I see work from guys like Ordway. They simply scream, this is how you draw superhero comics to me now. I enjoy the interesting angle of Power Girls and Hawkman's flight on the cover. The shading on Hawkman's wings makes them look almost shiny, and they really pop. 
Yeah, I am ashamed to say that I too didn't appreciate Jerry Ordway's work right away. If I did, I probably would have gotten into Superman and Power of Shazam back in the 90s, but I was young and stupid and dazzled by the 90s Marvel image style. First time commenter, I think Justin Berg mentioned, having just listened to this today, I remembered that in an issue of JSA, Power Girl travels to Gemworld to release the spirit of Arion, who tells her he's not really her grandfather and that she's not from Atlantis. I believe it was during Jeff Johns' run of JSA where her Atlantis origin is retconned. I don't remember her traveling to Gemworld. Was that in the JSA classified issues? I do not remember that story very well. I remember Psycho Pirate, but nothing really else. Nothing about Arian or Gemworld. Maybe I'm wrong. I, like I said, I don't remember the series very well. Keith G. Baker said, regarding Power Girl's boob window, I look at it this way. If Giada De Laurentiis can rock a boob window every other week on Food Network, Power Girl shouldn't get so much shit about it all the time. Well, that's difficult to argue until I see Bobby Flay and Alton Brown wearing capes. Also, how great would it be to see a Justice League episode of Chopped? And the last comment for episode 11 comes from Martin Gray. I was a fan of the Arion series, which had artwork by Jan Dursima for pretty much the whole run. You may need to buy more than four issues, Ange. Kupperberg didn't write every issue, Ryan. Doug Munch did a couple. I do hate this new origin for Karen, though. As Ange says, just go Daxamite and you get the beginnings of a Legion legacy. PG could eventually become Andromeda's great etc. grandmother. Instead, we have this mess which, as you guys said, should have elicited more of a reaction from Power Girl than, oh, now I have a dead family. I suppose Ariane had put a spell on her for that, too. She should have been raging, and given her grandmother was a non-Caucasian Lady Chien, she really shouldn't look quite so Nordic. Hey, she and Dinah Lance should have formed a support group. Superheroines who want to play with Lego because they never had childhoods. Nice. So there you go, a story that complicated Karen horribly and made Ariane, at best, a meddling grandfather with bad decision-making. At worst, Anton Arcane. Yeah. And I see all the arguments against the boob window and agree with most of them, but PG just doesn't look like herself without it. The scoop neck is a decent substitute, but it looks kind of careless. Fair point, Martin. Okay, moving on to the WordPress feedback from episode 12. Ange, the overnight podcast sensation and manager of the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, talked about how there are characters that he likes because the concept appeals to him, even if the execution of the character in print doesn't always impress. I totally hear that. It applies to a lot of my favorites. He also said, The Golden Age Fury works the best for me in helping smooth over the early Earth 2 conundrum Roy Thomas was facing. Iron Monroe is a close second. I like that Thomas kept a strong Greek myth wrinkle to this Diana analog. I like that her power level is akin to Wonder Woman. I like that there is a sort of incredible Hulk feel to the Blood Avenger, an out-of-control element that adds a new feel to this character, differentiating her a bit from Diana. I like that her costume color scheme matches the Infinity Ink Fury, and I like the costume aesthetic overall. I dig the male armor look on heroes, and she looks great. As for this issue, I agree that the splash page feels off. There are other moments that might be better suited for the splash, the actual Oath to the Furies, or the transformation into the monstrous Tisiphone. Tony Disniga really adds a lot to the art here, giving a beautiful polish to Grinberg's work. Compare the Skyman origin by Grinberg and Gustavich, which is much more muddy. Page 10 is just slick. 
Siskoid from Siskoid's blog of Geekery and now the Lonely Hearts Romance podcast said, The Chow story is definitely the better story. I love its light touch. Chuck Patton's art is clean and crisp and could have been better scripted after it was drawn, but I'm not blaming him for the discrepancies. My favorite Challengers book was probably the Loeb Sale Deconstructionist miniseries. I loved weird takes on DC concepts that were being tried at the time. Animal Man and Doom Patrol are much more fondly remembered from this era, but the Chows could have been contenders. If Human Target could work as a fun action TV series, and it did, at least in the first season, then Challengers would work too. Kyle Benning from King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, and my fellow co-host on G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast with Aaron Head Moss said, regarding the Fury origin, I appreciate what Roy was trying to do here by marrying the Greek mythology with the World War II strife to create the character, but it fell a little flat. He just wasn't quite able to capture the same aesthetic here as he did with the other Golden Age origin stories that he was simply retelling with minor embellishments. And speaking about the Challengers, Kyle said, If nothing else, I'd like to see them treated as modern-day Johnny Quest team, and like the CGI cartoon from the 90s, travel around the world investigating myths and legends. Bring on a Challengers hunting Bigfoot mini. Then Kyle went on to say, talking about Roy Thomas's penchant for nostalgia and more innocent style, Nowadays, his 80s DC stuff is probably more well-regarded and better received than it was when it was originally published, just because it is so different in tone from the oversaturation of dark and gritty that plagues DC's lineup. I, for one, have always enjoyed his writing, whether that was his DC or Marvel work, but I would say it resonates and appeals to me even now more than ever. Maybe that's just me finding an even greater appreciation for his work as I get older. Maybe it's because of how disgruntled I am with DC's current offering. Or maybe it's a combination of both. Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast said, With regards to Fury and keeping in mind that I haven't read the issue for myself, I wonder if the splash page in question is just as much of a Roy Thomas homage love letter to the Golden Age as the rest of what Roy tried to accomplish within this and his other series at DC. Remember, Fury is a stand-in for Wonder Woman. Outside of her origin and the content of the stories themselves, what are Golden Age Wonder Woman comics known for? Bondage. William Moulton Marston was known for putting Wonder Woman in situations, often nearly every comic, if not multiple panels, within that comic, wherein the amazing Amazon was tied up or restrained in a very provocative positions by her captors. Granted, upon looking at that splash page, it seems that if that was what Roy was going for, perhaps he could have given his artist better direction as to what he wanted. Or maybe Roy thought this was as much as he could safely portray within the comic and still get it published. Perhaps he thought an out-and-out bondage scene as it was in the pages of Golden Age 1D Comics was too much to be put to paper by an artist with a more modern and realistic style. It's an interesting theory, Chad. If that was Roy's attempt to pay homage to the bondage scenes from Wonder Woman, then the art completely failed to convey that. That splash page doesn't look like bondage to me. It's a scene right out of EC horror. Uh, Chad goes on, The only other complaint I would level at the splash page, other than its obvious discomforting qualities, would be the negative space within the page. That is, the unused background. We're in Greece here. Surely there's something stunning and ancient that could be placed within the background. Not that the characters themselves aren't wonderfully rendered, just there could have been more there. Uh, I was thinking about this, Chad, and the thing is that the fight on that splash page is taking place on the Acropolis, which is the highest point of Athens. From there, you look out over the whole city in all directions. 
but where Grinberg places the camera sort of flat on the ground, almost looking up at the Nazi about to stab Fury, there really wouldn't be much in the background except for Sky. I mean, there okay, there are other ruins on the Acropolis. He could have drawn part of the Parthenon or the Erechtheum. Yeah, I, okay, I guess he could have spiced it up with a few more ruined temples, but it didn't bother me because I've kind of stood in that place, and if you're looking kind of from that angle, you'd just see Scott. You wouldn't really see a cityscape, but they, they, he could have positioned it a little bit to get more of the ruined temples around that area. Uh, Chad continues, Lastly, I've heard a few criticisms leveled at Roy over the episodes. Granted, I actually agree with most of them, but I just wanted to pipe up and provide a bit of positive spin on Roy to keep in the back of our minds. Roy Thomas is now the editor of Alter Ego from Tomorrow's Publishing. Alter Ego and Back Issue from Tomorrow's are, to my eye, the single best comics history resource out there. I mean that wholeheartedly. Roy may not have been the best guy for the job all the time, but it's clear his passion and love for these characters is something to be respected and admired, especially when it's channeled into such an informative publication like Alter Ego. That's a good point to bring up. Roy Thomas's contribution to comics since he left DC has still been incredible. The knowledge and history he brings is outstanding, and you're right, no one should ever doubt his passion for these characters and these stories. Uh, Mark Wade, who started at DC editing this series down the line, we'll get to that, was told by Dick Giordano that Roy Thomas would write these comics for free. That's how much he loved them. And yet... Maybe that was part of the problem by this point in his career, because it often feels like he's not writing for anyone but himself. And that can be troubling, because comic books are an art form, yes, but they're also a commercial product. And creators who depend on selling their work on a regular basis ignore the audience at their own peril. Maybe... Maybe that played a part in why All-Star Squadron, Infinity Incorporated, and Young All-Stars all got cancelled within like two years of each other. Moving on. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast and the Power Records episodes of the Fire and Water podcast said, Plugging the holes left by a vacant Wonder Woman seemed to be a part-time job for Secret Origins. We get Fury here, and soon we'll get Miss America, who further muddies the waters of just who was in the JSA filling in for the now non-existent Diana. On top of that, Black Canary steps in for the late-to-the-party modern Wonder Woman, who was too new to help form the original Justice League. I appreciate the backstory of Fury, and on her own, I think she could be an interesting character. But as a Golden Age analog to Wonder Woman, I think her look and dark demeanor don't seem to really work. She's a bit too intense to imagine as the JSA's secretary. Well, you had me into that last part, but I don't think we necessarily need to remember Wonder Woman as the JSA's secretary. Jeff Nettleton said about the Fury story, to me, this story seems to start out like a filler classic DC war comic story, then goes off on a weird supernatural tangent, almost like a leftover from Weird War. I don't know, but Roy seemed to do this kind of stuff much better in Invaders. Page 12 is rather jarring, and does look like a rape scene. It reminds me of when I met Tamora Pierce. She had recently done a White Tiger miniseries for Marvel, and said she'd never work with them again. The artist had a male attacking the character, a female, in a similar manner, in disregard for Pierce's script, and the editor couldn't seem to understand why Pierce objected to it. The ironic thing is that she was a fan of classic Marvel action comics, particularly the character Misty Knight. She could have done an awesome Daughters of the Dragon series. I like that White Tiger miniseries, and I remember thinking that Tamora Pierce seemed at one point to be on the edge of breaking out as a big comic writer, 
but then just sort of disappeared, it seems. I, it sucks if she split with Marvel because of that, but sadly this is a story that you can find repeated over and over if you dig into how female creators are treated within the comics community, both by the publishers and by the fans. And yeah, bring on more Misty Knight. If she doesn't show up in the Netflix series for Luke Cage or Iron Fist, I'm going to turn over a car. Uh, Jeff talked about the Challengers of the Unknown novel that Doug found, saying Ron Goulart specialized in pulp fiction and did a lot of licensed work in ghost-wrote novels of this type. He wrote the bulk of the Phantom novels from Avon, based on Lee Falk stories. He ghost-wrote William Shatner's Tech War novels and also wrote a pretty decent history of comic books, mostly focusing on the Golden Age in 1950s, but covering the Silver Age as well. I used it as a reference for a paper I did on comic books in a college history class. Gotten hay. Good job, Jeff. He also did a comic-related encyclopedia a little after that. I never came across the novel here, but I did find a William Rossler, another pulp sci-fi writer and pornographic film industry writer, Blackhawk novel. It was pulpy fun and a decent story. I'd love to read that. Uh, Jeff gave his thoughts on Roy Thomas's history in comics and said he did become a nostalgia act at DC. But, in becoming a comic historian, he really seemed to get back to his true calling. I think that's a sentiment that a lot of us share. Nathaniel Wayne, from the forthcoming Council of Geeks podcast, commented on episode 12, In regards to Fury's origin, I actually have to disagree with both of you guys on the issue of her needing a stronger motivator than her mother's heart attack. I think this fits perfectly with the Fury's M.O., that being revenge. In a more even-handed world, yes, the brother having a more direct hand in the mother's death would have been better and would have been more just. But the Furies aren't about justice. They're about vengeance, which, by its very nature, is retribution in excess of the original wrong. The vibe I got from Tisiphne was that she was taking advantage of the Furies being summoned to reinforce their presence in the world as much as she possibly can, regardless of the original context of their summoning. The Furies aren't just there to allow this woman to have revenge, they have their own agenda as well, and having the inciting incident feel like a relatively minor slight feels correct to me. Uh, I responded to Nathaniel in the comments saying that the overreactive aspect of vengeance does suggest an interesting angle on Fury's origin. I like that, uh, especially if Tisiphone is more of a manipulative force on Helena, like sort of like a performance-enhancing substance that overwhelms the user's tolerance level. And I said that you could make connections to the alien symbiote suit from Spider-Man and Venom and the Incredible Hulk. And Frank said... This podcast is like last week tonight to Who's Who's Daily Show, except you drop three hours on us every week to there every sixth or so. That is the best compliment I've ever received. Frank goes on, I quite liked the secret origin of the Golden Age Fury, surely in no small part because this one actually was a secret, and I had never seen it told anywhere else. Greg mentioned a Legends of DCU arc that featured a new version, and I surely bought it if it had Wonder Woman as the lead, but I have no recollection of Fury turning up in one of those. Just her few appearances in the Jimenez run, and even then only vaguely. I was thinking the exact same thing as you guys were reading it, that this did not feel like a period origin, but absolutely came across as a late 60s, early 70s Neil Adams horror anthology piece that somehow spawned a superheroine. That's a pretty unique place to come from, and I dig it. Uh, interrupting this a bit, Gregor Rougeau posted a link to the revised Golden Age Fury origin from Legends of the DC Universe issue 31. It's at his never-ending reading pile Tumblr page. Check that out. Back to Frank's response. I was mostly on board with Black Canary replacing Wonder Woman in post-crisis Justice League continuity, but it didn't have much impact on my feelings toward that character. 
What I like about analogs like Fury and Moon Maiden is that by serving as a Wonder Woman stand-in as their primary purpose for existing, the Amazing Amazon takes ownership over those characters to expand her somewhat anemic family and better keep up with the world's finest duo. I'm not sure I track that logic, Frank. That sounds like appreciating Batgirl or Nightwing because they help make Batman more popular. Maybe I'm not getting your meaning here. Uh, Frank goes on, Helena Kosmatos is Greek and derives her power from ancient mythological figures like Diana, but her persona, motivation, and circumstances are vastly different. Helena clearly despises her brother for reasons beyond his treason, which we're not privy to, and it feels like she's using his collaboration as merely a weapon in a greater war. She contributes to the death of her mother, but even as she sheds a tear for the departed, Helena never truly wavers from her assaults on Michael's character and desire to mete out punishment. She doesn't cradle her mother and mourn throughout the night, but leaves the departed lying on the floor as she gives chase, without regard for the obvious immediate consequences. Helena isn't fit for consideration by the Furies because of her virtue or any specific act committed by Michael, but because of the depths and relentlessness of her anger towards her brother and any other she feel have wronged her. She's more of an anti-Wonder Woman than Artemis could ever hope to be, and therefore an exciting contribution to the Amazonian library. Well, that makes her sound really cool. I wish I had gotten that kind of reading from the story. It's also an interesting, sort of a second counter-argument to what Nathaniel and I were saying. Greg and I thought that Helena's motivation was lacking when the Furies found her. Nathaniel thought that her motivation was sort of irrelevant in terms of the Furies' intention. And Frank thinks that the motivation is sort of perfectly in tune, that she doesn't care about justice at all. Helena is an angry, vengeful person and the perfect vessel for the Furies. Interesting takes. We all got something different. The next point Frank brings up, I have to take issue with. He says, the modern era Furies costume is a mess of ugly without excuse. That part I agree with. But I like her mother's suit as a not entirely successful stab at period wear. I think there's too much skin in the wrong places, I find the asymmetry questionable, and the shoulder guard is dumb, but I like the basic color scheme and scale armor. I do wish a tiny bit more effort was put into making her chest symbol look like anything identifiable, which is kind of the most basic and essential job of an icon. I also feel that they needed one more color for the costume to be believable as period, because it's nigh monochromatic with the modest shift from orange to yellow, and contrast was king in the 40s. Frank, you say you like the costume except for the stupid shoulder guard and the chest symbol, which doesn't look like anything, and it fails to look like a Golden Age costume because there's too much skin, too much asymmetry, and the color scheme doesn't work. Tell me again what you do like about it. Of the Challenger's origin, he said, Challengers of the Unknown was Jack Kirby's last unqualified hit comic for DC and a major reason why he left. The same creative team worked together to develop the Sky Masters of the Space Force newspaper strip out of Kirby's failed Space Busters proposal. After its success, Kirby and his Challengers editor, Jack Schiff, had major disputes over Sky Masters and ended up suing each other. Depending on who you ask, Kirby either quit working for DC over his discomfort with Schiff related to the lawsuits, or was fired because Schiff said elements of the stories developed for Challengers were turning up in Sky Masters. Either way, it set the stage for the birth of Marvel Comics, and the only other original title Kirby produced at DC that could halfway be considered a sales success was Commandy. And in response to my conversation with Doug about adapting Challengers as a TV show, Frank said, This is Fox Force 5. 
It reminds me of an article I read in Amazing Heroes years ago about comic book properties that never should have been adapted to other media. A licensor was once talked out of acquiring screen rights to Werewolf by Night by Marvel because it wasn't worth the paperwork when werewolves are in the public domain so anyone can do their own take on them. As cool as the challenger's name is, anybody could do the exact same premise under the title like Death Defiers. The challengers are the smart guy, the pilot, the bruiser, the young Turk, and the girl. As noted, Kirby ripped himself off for Fantastic Four, which is a far better and more viable team that Marvel still struggles to market. Also, even Kirby recognized that the team dynamics were flabby and combined two types for Ben Grimm. This team has too many dudes who are indistinguishable from one another aside from their specialties, which themselves aren't all that special. Everybody in the Blackhawks can fly a plane, throw a punch, do a little detective work, and shoot a gun. Plus, they have more diverse personalities and looks. Even when cover inker Carl Kiesel revised the concept with Tom Grummet as Section Zero, featuring Dr. Titania Challenger, he included an alien and a reptile being. Whatever potential the concept has, the challengers require such drastic rehabilitation that you might as well just start from scratch on a new property. Diablo Frank, never failing to leave me depressed at the end of his comments. And finally, backtracking a little, Kyle Benning said, Nice choice going with Living on the Edge by Aerosmith there. I dig it. But Jeff Nettleton said, Man, Kelly Clarkson and then Lady Gaga? That's some girly music collection you got there, Ryan. We need to dig out some heavy metal for this podcast. Get some testosterone going musically. Hey man, be glad I haven't used my guilty pleasure Miley Cyrus song on the podcast yet. That'll be it for this week. A big round of thanks goes out to everyone who appeared on this episode, including Rob Kelly, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arugio, The Irredeemable Shag, Siskoid, Diablo Frank, Illegal Machine, Cindy Franklin, and Angela Drew. And very special thanks goes out to my three guest hosts, Tom Paneris, Paul Scavito, and Nathaniel Wayne. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or at BlackCanaryFan or the username CountDrunkula. You can send feedback to the show via email at BlackCanaryFan at gmail.com and please let me know if the feedback is private and you don't want it read on future episodes. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Sorry, I'm so far.